0: And I'm coming up with a rhyme.
1: I have a confession for your ears only, patrons.
2: I have seen a full body apparition. What's the next thing? That's our guest tonight, Dave Gibson. This is really cool. The one that lunged at him. That's scary. You know, I hate spoilers.
3: I woke up right before Christmas. I don't know how I got there. They just kind of uh, vanished. It sounds like a fascinating journey.
4: And I saw a little creature peeking out at me.
2: Wait, you got to keep your underwear on for the chicken dance?
4: That's not what the universe wants you to do.
2: Yeah, that's not friendly. We'll see you next time, everybody. Oh, boy. Listen to the Astonishing Jump drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends.
0: Astonishing Legends
4: would like to thank Peloton, Stitch Fix, Squarespace, Wondrium, Simply Safe, our contributors, at patreon.com and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
3: Astonishing Legends has been around for over seven years, with 236 main show episodes as of tonight. We've only asked listeners to submit their own stories twice, both times in 2020. So a few weeks ago, we thought, hey, you know what? We know you folks have anecdotes out there and we wanted to hear them. So we asked you to send them in and we could not believe how many details and fantastic stories we received by email and voicemail. So many of them were so fascinating that three things became immediately apparent. The first was that we need to do this more often. The second was that there are more people out there who've experienced the unexplained than we had ever imagined. And the third was that picking just a few to talk about tonight would be exceedingly tricky. And it was. The reality is that we have many more good ones that came in. So the first thing we'd like to say is that even though we only chose three for tonight, there are others that we'd like to share, both here on the main show, as well as on the Astonishing Junk Roar Show on Patreon, and possibly a few on YouTube as well for folks that would be open to that. So, if your story is not in tonight's episode, and you would know because we would have recorded you by now, don't worry, you may still hear from us. We had a lot of fun putting this one together, and if you folks like it, we'd like to do it again. But for tonight, we've chosen three stories with different elements that stood out to us. And we asked our old friend, Richard Haddam, to join us for the conversation on two of them. So, settle in with the headphones and get ready to hear some astonishing listener stories sent in by, well, sent in by you. you. <laughs>
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I just felt
3: right then and there that something was not right about that cave. Tom
2: Delaney, one of tonight's guests. Join us tonight for a very special Listener Stories episode. And we're back. That we are, folks. A couple of very quick notes before we get started tonight. Firstly, we know we need to restock a lot of stuff in the store, and we're working on that. Apologies for the delay. Secondly, if you've missed our latest crossover appearance, we were just on Our Strange Skies with our friend and fellow podcaster, Rob Christopherson, talking about, of all things, tiny UFOs. Ooh, yes. One of Scott's favorites. I love tiny UFOs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Who doesn't? Like
3: the Kara object, right? Turns out there are a lot more tiny UFO stories than you might think, and there's no one better suited on this particular planet for digging those kinds of things up than our Rob at Our Strange Skies.
2: Uh, yeah, so find Our Strange Skies wherever you get your podcasts, and look for his latest episode to find episode number 106, Miniature UFOs with Astonishing Legends. Ooh, does that mean we're in the miniature UFOs? Uh, sometimes. Oh, okay. Well,
3: anyway, folks, it's a great episode, so check it out.
2: They also have a tiny biplane.
3: (laughs) That's my favorite. The little guy that 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 waves at you little leather cap, yeah, and uh, it's, awesome. it's the most fun idea as a child that a toy could come to life, and then as an adult, it's the most terrifying thing. <laughs> so uh, it's you got a little bit of that, but it, but it's, that's a nice one. That's my favorite
5: story.
2: Oh, yes, and by the way, we did want to give a shout out to Brandon Schexnader, who was pinch-hitting on the edit for us on this show. Thank you so much, Brandon, for coming back into the fold. We, we like having you on backup.
5: Hmm.
3: Well, anyway, folks, we've got a great show for you tonight here, so let's get it started.
2: All right, here we go. We picked three stories to share tonight and we also asked rich adam to join us Mm -hmm. again for this so you'll be hearing from him here shortly for two of these three stories anyway so this first one
3: came to us from listener tara greenleaf a wisconsin resident and member of the red lake ojibwe nation
2: tara's story was pretty fascinating but then she also had some audio to go with it which we're going to share at the end of our discussion with her all right sarah roll that interview with tara greenleaf please so folks, we would like to welcome Tara Greenleaf to the show, as I said, and of course, Mr. Richard Haddam. Rich, thank you for joining us too. I'm so excited. We're excited to have you back. Just so the audience knows, Rich has no idea what stories he's going to be hearing tonight. So he's going to be...
6: I've been in a soundproof booth. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's just how he works at his regular job anyway. So it's yeah. not, there's not any
2: special accommodations. <laughs> Tara, you know, before we get into your story, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your background and what drove you to uh, reach out to us with your story?
1: Well, I am native to the northern Minnesota. I'm actually an enrolled member of the Red Lake Ojibwe Nation up here. So I've spent a majority of my life living in northern Minnesota
2: I think just think it's so cool that you're a member of the Ojibwe nation. Is that is and I, I've always wondered, it is Ojibwe or Ojibwe? Ojibwe. Jib. Okay. Just yes. like it's spelled. Okay. Great. What a fascinating culture to be a part of. What's that like for you up there in Minnesota? Is there, there are there a lot of people up there in your tribe?
1: Well, I've never been fortunate enough to live on my tribe. Um, from the Red Lake Nation where I'm from, it's a sovereign nation. Oh. So that means that there is no state police, there's no county police, everything is all done by tribal cops, or if it, there's just so much in American Indian law that it gets complicated. Sure. But basically, it just means we're our own country kind of up there. Right. Where we have to follow federal laws, but we don't have to, we get to make our own nation laws. And the part of the, tribe where I'm my family specifically from the Greenleaf tribe is from an area in Red Lake called Panima which has been historically known as kind of a supernatural hotbed. Oh really? Yeah,
2: actually. In what ways?
1: Well, that's where my second story comes from. My time warp story comes from in that area. My sister's mom has a missing time story, alien type story from there. There's been reports of, because Red Lake is huge, it's the biggest lake in Minnesota. Okay. And it's largely, largely underdeveloped by choice because of my tribe. We haven't decided to put resorts there, houses there, you know, so it's largely well-preserved. And there's been reports of seeing UFOs going into that lake. Oh, wow. We have legends of Bigfoot in my culture that go back Further than our knowledge of, say, alcohol. Wow! So for us, we didn't have words for things that didn't exist, and so our word for Bigfoot is actually older than our word for alcohol.
6: What is that word? That's amazing. Just to be fair, so is mine. I <laughs> discovered Bigfoot in my life long before alcohol. Now <laughs> they're they're running neck and neck. I'm fans of both. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So to Forrest's question,
2: what what is that word?
1: Misabi. Which, ironically, I moved just a little bit away from home to a place called Grand Rapids, Minnesota, not to be mistaken for Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay. (laughs) And it's really close to northern Minnesota, but also the Iron Range. There's a snowmobile trail up there called the Mesabi Trail.
7: Oh, really?
2: Mm.
1: So all these little things that I've, like, researched on my own are coming into play just kind of supporting each other
2: we would love to hear your stories, more than one if you want to share, in whatever order you would like. What would you like to talk about first?
1: I feel like my Bigfoot story, since we've already talked about that one like a little bit. Okay. So this happened after I moved to Grand Rapids, and um, my mental health wasn't doing all that great. And to get myself back on track, I checked into a depression center, a crisis center. And you can stay there for like, Couple two weeks periods while they help you get back into therapy on meds, or they even have different, like, aromatherapy. They have different homeopathic treatments there. So it wasn't just specifically meds and pharmaceutical company type of a treatment. Okay. While I'm staying there one night, I hear like these strange, like, yelling, whooping type noises. And I get like kind of weirded out. Like, I feel like I should go tell my monitor, like, the staff on duty. And so I go and tell the staff on duty and we go outside and while we're outside she starts telling me how coincidentally she used to work for finding Bigfoot and they did it do an episode in the Laporte Bina Ball Club area. Okay. So that kind of lines up with how she got involved in the finding Bigfoot team. She said that the reason why she quit was because they were trying to exploit Bigfoot which again Make sense. And she got into the mental health field because it just was her passion in helping people. So it all made sense. But she was really, really hesitant on letting me know what she heard. But I immediately was like, no, tell me. Like I've been trying to find answers for so long. So what you can hear is these whooping going back and forth, and you can hear them moving, but they're moving at such distances that it's way too fast for it to be like teenage boys to just be on feet, you know, or they're way too far apart. Like you would hear the four wheelers going or it wasn't a cougar because it didn't sound like a tiny old lady yelling bloody murder. Right. I've grown up in Northern Minnesota my whole yeah, life. So you
2: know what this stuff sounds like, which right. is one of our big points on this show. I love that you said that.
1: Yeah, so like I'm immediately trying to figure out what it could be, but I'm just hearing these whooping noises like going back and forth. And she's telling me that it's Bigfoot, that it's a pack of them, and they're hunting. They're running the deer together, is what they're doing. No. So it just happened to be the time of day where we were allowed our phones, and so I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to see if I can get them on on audio, so you can like hear me in this audio like turning it on and getting down there and as I'm like getting closer to the wood wooded area I can hear them like coming closer in at me and the monitor was like starting to get a little nervous for me because I just had no fear. I was like, oh, I'm going to go all the way in the woods. She's like, you're a client here. You better not. <laughs> She's thinking of the
3: legal responsibility. And yeah. how do you fill out a form that says what happened to you? After.
1: Right. And so I end up getting this recording, a couple of them. And it's okay. You guys can share them with the audience.
3: One question, Tara, though. As you're standing there with your iPhone, I guess, you, got a, you have a smartphone yep. that's recording. Could you tell where they were around you, were they uh, scattered around you? Were they all kind of grouped from one spot?
1: Basically. Yeah. How were they, how were they hunting? So in a three sixty degree from me, Mm -hmm. right. I would say they were about 180 degrees spread out between that.
3: Okay. So it was kind
1: of all in front of me,
3: right? Like a half circle though, right in front of you.
1: Yep. And you could hear them changing spots in between there. And then I would also like to note, so this went on for probably 20 minutes, a half hour. It went on for kind of a while. And after that, it was just still. It was eerily quiet. You didn't hear the deer. You didn't hear the cows that would be mooing occasionally all night long. Mm -hmm. You didn't hear bugs buzzing. You didn't hear leaves rustling either. Like It was just point blank, like... Dead quiet. Mm.
2: And again, this is somewhere on the the Red Lake. No, this is now. She's down in Grand Rapids. That was my next question. Not getting into any like HIPAA stuff or whatever. But I mean, can you tell us what part of town was, or where like this facility is? You don't have to if you don't want to. The facility
1: is out in the country. Okay, big converted farm country house okay so it's out in nature kind of like you see you're a few miles away from the highway okay. and then after that it's just straight like fields the iron range the forest it's kind of that's where the the landscape kind of changes from being heavily wooded to the iron range where it's more hilly where it's been mined so it's oh, kind of okay. that change of territory zone so would
2: that be like north south east or west of Grand Rapids proper?
1: I would say it would be west, west West, and
2: north a little. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm just looking now at maps. That's why I was trying to like, look, there are so many lakes and you're, you know, it's so funny when you mention how big. The red lakes are upper and lower. It's they are huge, substantially bigger. Yeah, I mean, all of Grand Rapids could easily fit in one of them, two of those two lakes. So that's
1: right. And like I said, for lakes that size to be that largely underdeveloped, yeah, is also an anomaly in this state.
2: (laughs) Yeah, wow, that's really cool. So, what about the distance? Like, were you able to? I mean, you could tell that they were far apart. It's fascinating that they were talking about them hunting. So you're saying the person who worked at the facility was yep. was like, I have worked with finding Bigfoot. She yeah. said that, or he said he or
1: And said that. the information, like she also said that they have this running theory that Bigfoot has infrared vision, which is something that in my culture, we didn't necessarily have the same terms, but we believed that they had a different kind of vision that they could see at night with. So okay. that kind of correlates together just the way that Bigfoot and Masabi are correlating together. The fact that I've always been interested in Bigfoot. The night that I got a recording of this video happens to be my father's birthday, and my father passed away when I was 14, which is odd because that's where my second story about the time warp happened when I was 14 around my dad's passing. So, like, just all these serendipitous things, you know, these idiosyncratic order of the chaos coming together is something that like just kind of drives home to me that what I heard and saw was definitely real, at least to me
2: in my world and my belief. So that begs another question. Do you feel like it was, you know, because there's varying theories about Bigfoot and whether it's just an unknown primate or something more spiritual or interdimensional or, you know, UFOs, everybody talks about all these different origins. And did you get a sense from this encounter? Why can't it
1: be all the above? Right. And that's kind of what my belief is, is that it's all the above. It is spiritual because it's something that's become more and more prevalent as I'm diving more into my spiritual beliefs. It is interdimensional, which is something my culture has long said and believe in. Our culture and my legends date back saying that we come from the Star people, but what are Star people but aliens?
2: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: I mean, just the word that we have, wasabi for Bigfoot, which is older than our word for alcohol. I mean, we believe in them being interdimensional beings. We also believe that they travel and live under the lakes, which if you look at the cave system of the United States, they all tend to be underneath the lakes and also correlates with the Missing 411 documentary, where they show where all of the strange disappearances happen to be is within the cave system. I mean, everything is just correlating all together, overlapping with each other. So to me, it's why
2: not all the above? Okay, so I have so many questions. I guess my (laughs) my other question is, I know you had a sense of how far apart they were from each other and how fast they were moving, but how far do you think they were from you?
1: Probably a mile or so. So they weren't super close, but they went from a good mile and a half distance of being away from me to by the end of me in the recordings to being a mile away from me, which that recordings, it's only in a span of about five minutes. So for them to be able to move about a half mile distance in a five minute period, that doesn't make sense for being in the woods.
6: So Tara, you were not alone when you heard this, right?
1: No, there was about me, one other client and the monitor out there.
6: And the monitor was someone who worked there and who had heard these sounds before.
1: While she was working for Finding Bigfoot. So in a her previous life before being a monitor.
6: But she hadn't heard them at this particular location.
1: Not at the house, but in the area generally where I'm from, yes. Just not from the specific location.
3: And she certainly heard them that night too. Yeah, she was right there with you.
6: It's not like people, like a haunted hotel. It's not like, oh yeah, the people who are here, the people who work here, we hear this all the time. Oh, no, no.
1: It was definitely an anomaly. And she said that um, we were actually really lucky and fortunate to get to hear this because it's not something that the public will normally hear in a lifetime. They'll normally not get to hear one Bigfoot yelling, let alone them hunting. So she said that that was kind of a big anomaly
6: for us to even get to hear. What did the other client Think did they have a a reaction that you noticed? They were super sketched out,
1: like, oh my goodness, this is, what's happening here? Like I hear it like she she believed in Bigfoot too, but like it's one of those things like what's going on? You tried to put some real world answer into what you've heard, and there isn't always a natural world answer to it
6: right, and if I was Joshua Cutchins. I would have to ask you, was there any other phenomenon going on around that time? Was anybody noticing lights in the sky, poltergeist activity? Was there any other odd anomalous phenomenon that night or the day before or the day after?
1: No poltergeist. No. um, In my culture, we say money duke rather than ghosts or spirits or demons. We just say money dukes. Money dukes. That was my nickname in college. <laughs> <Money Duke>. oh. <laughs> well, they might have tried to say something to you. <laughs> but there was definitely no like money duke activity mm-hmm. around there. I have plenty of paranormal, supernatural stories. These are just my the two that have stuck with me the most and bothered me the most. I've seen spirits and money dudes before. I have not seen aliens, but I did not see any lights out in the directions. It was mostly just the fact that it was eerily quiet afterwards that I noticed and the fact that it was on my dad's birthday, which for it to be an anomaly for me to hear it on my dad's birthday when I've always been attracted to Bigfoot and finding Bigfoot and my other story happens to revolve around, you know, my dad and his property I have another like story about. So like For it to just kind of tie into my personal history, kind of.
6: Yeah. How do you remember feeling? What was the biggest emotion you were feeling when this was going on?
1: Mostly shock that I was like, oh my goodness, am I for real hearing what I believe I'm hearing? You know, it's kind of like, what do you see when you find Santa Claus? Like if you were to see Santa Claus, you know, not the same exact- Well,
6: I'd be super happy, but I don't know. Were you scared or were you happy or I don't know?
1: Well, I like to be scared. So I'm a big, huge scaredy cat. (laughs) 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 I hate heights, but I want to go skydiving and we'll climb those towers, you know, the fire towers. I'll go into haunted houses. I just like being scared. So yes, I was like, oh my goodness, what if they come and eat me? (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, "But well, I'm going to get documentation of it first.
6: <laughs> That's the way so to you go. So you were in shock and you were sort of happy, but you were like, there was emotional arousal, like, oh my God, something's happening.
3: Right. I think at this point, you know, what I heard is, and oddly people might not make this connection is that in Los Angeles, and I, I've always, I've said before, I live pretty close to Griffith Park where there's a lot of wildlife. You know, it's coming down off the hills like i get coyotes most every night you can hear them congregating and there is an element to that where the sound that you played for us has a animalistic quality and, and not that humans couldn't make that but there is there's definitely a tone there there's a there's a sense that there is an animalistic quality it's got that i don't Primate know sound? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, right a whooping. Yeah, like like baboons. Are there any whooping. primates
2: native to that area? No. None. None.
1: Okay. There's no wild chimpanzees that escaped the zoo that <laughs> night. Right. There's right. there no King Kong that was coming to climb up the trees yeah. into Red Lake and play. I right. mean,
3: Tara, you you've heard coyotes before, right? You know, what I'm talking yes. about where they, they. It's a really creepy, weird sound. But this is it's different.
1: It's creepy. Uh, just like the cougar sound. It sounds yeah. like a tiny old lady getting murdered. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. like <laughs> yeah. like it's terrifying. Right. Uh, If you've lived in the area and you know what you're listening to, it almost sounds weird if you weren't to hear one for a summer. Yeah, Or in an area where you're used to typically hearing a cougar sound or a wolf or bears, you know if you live in the woods long enough, you get to know where your big game is. Right, At least their territory.
6: Have you gone on – because if you go on the internet – there are audio samples of people who have recorded things that they say might be Sasquatch or Bigfoot. And have you subsequently gone and listened to any of those and compared those to what you heard?
1: I've listened to a couple, but because it was just one, it was a little bit different. I haven't listened to many. Okay. I don't know why.
6: (laughs) Well, the whooping thing is definitely part of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, characteristic of these recordings.
1: And I just know just from my own research and collecting the legends from my culture and doing the documentaries research, you know, just by doing my own research, I know that they're primates. And so the fact that, like, this sounds very apish, that was the only proof I needed.
3: But also unlike any other natural indigenous animal that you usually hear right around there so you what i'm saying is that this is a unique sound in a way and what's funny is like what rich was saying like yeah if you listen to a lot of them and there's certainly a good collection of them now you can start to tell what's a bigfoot like you you know like there's i don't believe everybody's faking these and deciding to do these vocalizations to establish a a common bigfoot sound but you start to recognize what they are. And what I would say is that anybody who spends time in the woods, like, especially, you know what things sound like in your area. And this is nothing like anything you've ever heard, right?
1: Correct. Whereas I might have heard kind of sounds like the beginning of that song by Disturbed, the wah-ah-ah-ah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it kind of <laughs> reminded me of that sound or like other Sounds that I've heard on planet Earth on TV, Mm -hmm. but that it's coming through speakers. Right. It's a totally different experience hearing something like a Bigfoot recording through speakers versus hearing it live and in surroundings where you haven't heard that type of thing. There's not speakers above your head that are giving this to you, you know, like, Mm -hmm hearing something live is very different than hearing something through a speaker. So I think that definitely was another element to it for me.
2: Hmm. My only other question, here's the question we have, and maybe in your research, you know this, what were they hunting?
1: Deer was what the monitor had said. Okay. I have another two Bigfoot stories. One of them was them hunting a cow that night, but I was just more of a singular one hunting a cow. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't hear the back and forth of it. And then my most recent kind of Bigfoot encounter, I guess I could say, is that my friend who they, him and his family, owned a significant amount of property compared to somebody who, who doesn't have any, you know? Mm-hmm. And right. they would report either hearing Bigfoot or some of the kind of cows going missing too.
3: That's another question. When folks around there think they have hunted or poached their cattle, It's not like a cattle mutilation. You don't see any evidence of it. It's just the entire. It's just cows gone. Just poop. They're just gone
2: entirely. Right. Just gone.
1: And then that kind of reminds me of our legends. We have this fairy tale where little kids don't go outside at night because owls will put you in their ear and take off with you and you'll never be seen again. Okay. Which the more I've been looking into the cryptids type stuff, could be any different type of cryptid, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily just Bigfoot. Right. So if if my culture is having legends that go back generations upon generations, like past the point of us having, you know, any Western influence on it at all, for us to have these kind of stories and legends, like to me, I feel like there just has to be some sort of thread of truth to it, you know?
3: Before you get into your your next Bigfoot story, do they have any... Kind of like, as you were describing, they've been known to hunt. They'll take a whole, you know, whole steer or cow and make off with it. Do your people have any, other than the star people, like any kind of thoughts on strange lights in the sky or what we would call UFOs or or UAPs now, or things coming out of the lake? Are there any definitions or stories about those?
1: Maybe not legends mm-hmm. necessarily. Well, we do have legends about the little people, I will mm-hmm. say. But it's that is kind of a taboo subject, along with Bigfoot being a taboo subject. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how the Navajos with the skinwalkers, right. it's just something we don't talk about. Right. It's not quite to that degree of malevolence as skinwalkers, mm-hmm. but it's still one of those things where if you talk about it, you're inviting it upon yourself. But it's also just something that I've always been drawn to, but my spirit name is something that where I just always am going to question everything. My Indian name is Bitawana Gwadukwe. And it's talking about how the top and the bottom layer of the clouds go the same direction. But that middle layer of clouds floats its own way, goes its own direction. And I'm that cloud woman in the middle that goes whatever direction I see fit, not wherever society sees fit. So it just is part of my personality to be interested in things that I probably shouldn't, you know, that are a little taboo. But I think I have more of an innocent kind of childlike interest in it where i'm not trying to gather this information to be malevolent Mm. i'm not trying to gather this information to use it against bigfoot or to use it against the little people i'm not trying to tell anybody else what to believe or to use it to start a cult or you know i'm not using it for anything malicious it's purely childlike i just want to know Mm. why can't i know (laughs)
3: that's what we say on the show all the time what is the second encounter story of yours
1: well my other story was about this time warp and so this time warp happened when i was 14 so to get to the area of panema that my dad is buried in you have to take a road and it's just one road and when you get towards the end of it there's going to be stop signs and and the lake on the left hand side. And so then we drove up, had my dad's ceremony. So then by the time we get done hours later, it's now like 10, 11 o'clock and it's it's in the spring. So, I mean, it's kind of chilly out still. And so we're driving back and it's me, my stepmom, my older sister, who's probably in her 30s, I believe. And then my littlest sister and my niece. So it was like all of my dad's like girls, like most of us anyway. It's not all of us. And we were driving back. So that means Red Lake would have been on the right side and the first stop sign. So the second stop sign is probably only a mile away. It doesn't take long. It's a minute drive maybe. So we're driving along. We see the moon reflecting on Red Lake. We hit this first stop sign and then we're driving and driving and driving straight, still like continuing to drive straight. And as soon as all of us are like, notice that we've are still driving straight, one of us asks, Where's the second stop sign at? And we've been driving for like 20 minutes, I think my stepmom said. And then as soon as she says that, I look over and I can see the moon reflecting on Red Lake again. And we hit the first stop sign again. And then we drive minute and we hit the second stop sign as normal
3: it's like you went in a loop right it's like you got to before you got to the first stop sign or after like you just yeah yeah it was just like time stretched way out but nothing in between looked weird what's right?
1: that toby Maguire reese witherspoon movie pleasantville it was like that scene in pleasantville when he's walking and he realizes oh i'm at the beginning of the block again
7: yeah <laughs> right. it was, it was
1: right. like that where we're just going straight. There's no turning, nothing. But here we hit Red Lake again. It was just like that.
6: Yeah. And everybody in the car had the same experience.
1: Yes. It's nothing that we've talked about since that night that it happened. But it is something that all of us were like, that was really freaking weird. What happened? Like, why were we driving for 20 minutes? Where were we for 20 minutes? How did we not turn anywhere? There's no where to turn.
3: Did you notice anything weird with your your watches? Did anything stop? Did you notice that it took much longer? If you notice what time you were supposed to get home, like I said, if this is 10 to 11 p.m., wherever you're going next, did you notice anything solid about it? Like, wow, that was, yeah, that that route did take another hour than it should have.
1: It only took another 20, it was just a period gap of about 20 minutes. Mm, okay. I can't say how long we were driving in the actual time warp before Mm -hmm. we all at the same time were like, we've been driving and haven't turned for way longer than a mile. I don't know, I'm still super puzzled by this myself. I haven't really shared this particular story with too many people. Definitely shared my Bigfoot story a lot Mm -hmm. more than this one because it puzzles me so much Mm -hmm. on what happened, how it happened. But I do know that my other sisters who were not in the car with us, but their mother happened to have a missing time warp in that same area of highway that we did, that me and my other sisters had the same experience. She said hers happened in like the 70s or 80s. I'm not sure, but it was like a period of about three hours. And when, when they came back, they were in the same exact spot of road, like they hadn't moved at all and it was like witching hour it was now 3:15 when they left the house at like midnight and it's this same part of part of town where like it shouldn't take that long to get to Bemidji it should only take about a half hour once you're past the stop signs it's only about a mile in between the stop signs and there's nowhere to turn you're kind of just on this road
6: mm. so here's the thing when you live in an area like that this is very much how you understand geography it's like half hour past the stop sign or 10 minutes and then you see the lake mm-hmm. that's just that becomes a very common way to understand things as opposed to I live in the middle of a city and everything is just, you know, freeway, on ramp, off ramp. And it
1: takes like 35 minutes to get a mile.
6: <laughs> yeah. Right. And your phone is telling you exactly where you're going. And it's not you're you're not figuring it the same way. But there, but they're not going else by landmarks. Do. Exactly. And and that's sort of like like I've I've visited and spent time in areas where it's like, oh right, this takes about 25 minutes. And being a city person, I'll think, wait, am I lost? And then I'm like, oh, no, they said it would take 25 minutes, and it took 25 minutes, and now we're seeing the landmarks that we were told to see. So so that I totally get. Even though it's not as locked down mile to mile, that's a thing. And so if a thing that's supposed to take 30 minutes takes an hour, that's a big deal. The other thing is this. We're very conscious right now. We're doing a recording We're in the the middle of our work day. We're listening to this and we're hearing a story and we're thinking, I would have been so freaked out. I would have pulled over. I would have jumped out of the car, all this stuff. And yet that's never what happens. No. Typically when people have these experiences, you feel deeply disturbed. It's very weird. And then almost for your own psychic survival, you have to just push it aside, and move on because there is no second theory. It's not like, oh, well, here's what probably happened. There's no probably. It's the same thing. The only slight sort of experience I've had with this are a couple of cases of weird precognition. But when you have that, there is no explanation. So then you just go, oh, okay, yeah, I kind of dreamed that. And then you just go on with your life because there really isn't any other way to proceed.
1: I do have some sensitivities to being a clairsentient and cognizant. I don't have the actual visuals of it. So that is something where I have a little bit of sensitivity towards. But as far as that and this time warp story, I have no explanation. I have no like no knowledge of anything, like no, like anything that I can say, I just feel because I don't know. I did
6: not, I don't know. I don't know. Right. It's like that subreddit glitch in the matrix. Exactly. Mm -hmm. They're the most disturbing things because it's the sort of thing that makes you think we're not living in a physical reality that we can depend upon. There's a skip on the, on the record. There's the, the, the tape has a blank spot Something about our experience is weirdly mechanical and is somehow prey to mechanical glitches. And that's so upsetting that we, we just, you can't think about it that long.
3: Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Jill. Now back to the show. Did anybody, yourself or anyone in the car, notice anything at all out of the ordinary or just different or a different kind of feeling? Did you see, feel anything, smell anything? Was there anything out of the ordinary?
1: I wish I could say that I noticed more, but we were just so early on in our grief, that maybe that made some of the things just something that we couldn't even, you know, we're still trying to comprehend our loss. And then to have this thrown on top of it a week later, I mean, you kind of, most of it has gotten filed away over the years. And it's just recently that I've even begun like, bringing the memory up with myself to kind of see if I notice anything with it, you know, trying to see right. if, if I've repressed anything from my memory from it, you know?
3: Okay. Now, after both these encounters, did you go back in the daytime to go look for any kind of signs of, of anything or, or or evidence?
1: No on the evidence for Bigfoot, because I was, again, in a crisis center. Mm. But I have heard what I could now officially like identify within myself of hearing as a Bigfoot call, I definitely was able to pick up on that more. My kind of Clair sentient, cognizant um, abilities have definitely heightened with these experiences. I don't know if there's an actual correlation or anything. I it's just interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything's very interesting.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say, you know, these things happen to people repeatedly, for whatever reason, it, we just know that anecdotally from the emails that we get, people saying like, I don't just have one story, I get about four or five, or this has always happened to me during my life, or within families too, with the same siblings, so there's something to that, where it's, some people seem to uh, have attracted that, or it's, it's singled them out, or there's, a, there's a reason that we just don't know, but, and then there's, People like myself, uh, who've you know they, they've never seen anything really major. I did hear something like an animal sound that was, that was anomalous because uh, it whatever it was was invisible. But, but that's about it. And then uh, there's Stan Gordon, as I was mentioning, like he's been studying these kinds of strange cryptid encounters for fifty years, all his life, and uh, has seen aftermath of different things, but never anything. Directly, right? He's just—he's seen some evidence, weird footprints. He's taken castings. Yeah, nothing ever uh, live, you could say. But you can't Strange. pick. Strange. Yeah, you can't. You can go through your whole life trying to see something. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. And then there's a lot of people who don't want to see something, and then they do. And then that's the that's the part where it's more st- most disturbing because you weren't looking for it, and it came anyway.
1: Well, and then that's the whole thing too the whole genre of supernatural is so wide ranging from alien abductions to just believing in ufos to time warps in the missing time to bigfoot to skinwalkers to just playing ghosts and demons and exorcisms in the ouija board i mean they're all different subsets and not many people will like subscribe to every single one of these subsets of supernatural.
3: No, yeah. People are just aren't into, they're just not into some subjects where they'll heartily believe or or at least give some credence to one thing, but yeah, ghosts, UFOs, no. Uh, Bigfoot, no, but ghosts, yes. You know, it's just, it's just, it's a very personal thing.
1: My brother, for instance, he doesn't believe in ghosts. He doesn't believe in the paranormal at all. He doesn't believe in Bigfoot. My mom and my stepdad My stepdad, he can believe in spirits and ghosts and that kind of things, the money do. But he said he's lived in the same area of forest since he got out of Vietnam Mm -hmm. and has never heard of an ape-like noise like that before. So he cannot comprehend that my story could be real. My mom, she's straight up asked me, like, Tara, why do you have all this interest in all of this supernatural stuff? Like, Why do you just want to talk about Bigfoot or aliens or anything like this? Because to her, she just doesn't understand why. And to me, it's a conspiracy theory that, that there is no correct answer for. And it's unlike the other type of conspiracy theories where it's about global domination. I can't do anything about global domination. I can't do anything about the Pope and what he's deciding to do with the Catholic church. I can't do anything about what president's going to do what and hide what information from us or when it's going to come out. I can't do anything about that. But what I can do is try to research my own experiences with spirits, with UFO. I can do that. I can research into that. Yeah. And as long as I'm trying to be a better version of myself, who's more knowledgeable, who is kind and humble Then I don't see what the harm is in it.
2: Well, I don't either. I think it's great. I mean, obviously, we think it's great with because it's what we do for a living. But uh, (laughs)
1: like-minded people, for one, for for me. (laughs) But no,
3: you're you're right. I mean, here's what's interesting that people say, who are hardcore UFO researchers, is that when you consider it's not just a very intelligent, as intelligent as a human type of animal or primate out doing its own thing if you're talking about aliens and the alien ufo experience is that it's not just with governments like you said there's whatever plans are going on or conspiracies happening with them that's out of our purview we we have no control over that but that phenomena is also very personal in that they don't just go to worldly you know just take us to your leader they go right. to individuals they reveal themselves to average people who I think can't all be wrong or making stuff up or just misinterpreting something. So it is also a very personal, individual, and in that way, democratic or egalitarian experience. And that's happened to to anybody.
1: Right. Like some of these supernatural paranormal events happen to very credible people, Mm -hmm. you know, in whatever career they're in. But Then as soon as they say they have this incredible story, why does that automatically make them not credible anymore? It shouldn't, you know, and I've seen that a lot in the past with just trying to explain my own stories to people that, oh, well, there's you're crazy or you were there for your mental health or, you know, da, 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 da. And it's just like, does that make my story any less real for me like just because you're trying to deny this
3: well as you as you said at the beginning of our call it it, it only has to be your truth it only has mm-hmm. to be real for you and what anybody else thinks is also, none of their business also you have a recording of
2: it so <laughs> it go, doesn't yeah. matter while you were there you could have been you know washing a car or whatever it's like you have a recording of a very strange sound so and that's... i've
1: been told that i I've, I've made up i've manipulated this video which again if they don't want to believe me that was fine that was not the issue the issue was
0: uh-huh.
1: why are you telling me that i've made up this video when i have very little knowledge of anything technological anything <laughs>
0: right
7: right like
1: I had to have my friend help me set up for this interview on the computer because I don't know much about technology. Mm. I'm writing my books on typewriters and using Polaroids to document my friendships. That's awesome. I'm someone who's very like retro when it comes to this. So me of all people, I wouldn't even know how to start making a fake video.
3: (laughs) Well, in the end, it doesn't matter. It's that these are special experiences and they're all yours. And No one else has to weigh in on it. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, so.
1: It's nice to be around like-minded individuals, though. Yeah. I will say that, so thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Tara, for for agreeing to come on. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us, and uh, on behalf of our listeners, thank you. All righty, then. Well, before we
3: get to listening to these audio clips, Scott, why don't you tell everyone here
2: how we're going to do it and what we're going to hear? So what she did was she sent us two recordings— and keep in mind now, this stuff that's on here, this is what that person who was working with finding Bigfoot, <laughs> this is what they thought was right. a series of Sasquatch corralling and hunting deer in the nearby woods. Yeah. Okay. So there's a, there's two clips. The first one is a minute and 14 seconds long, and then the second one is 28 seconds. And and these came to us from Tara as smartphone movies. And I, I say smartphone because I'm not sure whether she has an iPhone or an mm-hmm. right? but uh, but she sent these movies to us and you can't see anything really. So the video is not pertinent, but we pulled the audio into some of our software here to try and clean it up so you can better hear the sounds that she recorded. And well, I don't know. I found them not only unusual, but. Uh, frankly, a little chilling once you zero in on this. You, my friend, are not
3: listening to enough Bigfoot yelps. Uh, no, <laughs> I know. The, uh, it's just... When you hear them, no, that's the idea, though, is that when you hear them, uh, yes, you're going to get a lot of comments about other natural animals, of course. And some of those natural animals out in the wild do sound pretty freaky and they're disturbing. Uh, fennec yeah. foxes uh, fighting or mating or big cats, They make crazy sounds like this, but this, you recognize this as what a lot of Bigfoot hunters will offer as Bigfoot calls. And we don't know enough about it, but what we'll say is that they have now collected enough different types of calls that they can tell you, like any woodland animal, will have different calls for different reasons. Uh, Some are greeting between themselves. Some are, hey, look out for this. Some are angry, like, get the heck out of here. Yeah. kind of things. And uh, some might Man's be juveniles in the forest <laughs> is they're all disturbing and creepy. That's the point yeah. here. And so you have to make up your own mind what this is. If you have an experience out in the woods and you know what the sounds are for this particular piece of territory here, maybe you can weigh in on that. Or yeah. you're just guessing if you're not from yeah. there saying like, well, come on, that's not, it can't be a Bigfoot. It's got to be this. Well, maybe it is, but listen to it first. So when we hear this, the first pass will be the raw audio, right? Meaning you have done nothing to it. Yeah.
2: So this this is going to be the first one in its entirety, nothing extra applied to mm-hmm. it, but volume. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're going to hear all the handling noise. You're going to hear her walking around, uh, trying to get closer to it, and also whisper talking to some of the people she's with. Sarah, play that first clip, the one that we're, we're calling clip number one. Okay, so now here is the longest uninterrupted portion of a call from that first one, again, just with enhanced volume. All right, here's that same section again with a little denoising applied. Where we reduce the noise, clip volume raised further, and some dynamic compression introduced, which that does create some extra artifact type of digital noise, which you might hear a little bit. It'll be more in the foreground, kind of like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. That's not unusual. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a byproduct of trying to clean up the stuff we don't want right. in the clip. So uh, focus only on what the former consultant to Finding Bigfoot with Tara said <laughs> uh-huh. with Bigfoot calls. Just focus on that. So that's the first clip with those two enhanced passes. Now this is the second clip Tara sent us. No enhancements other than increased volume. Okay, so here's that clip again with noise reduction and rumble reduction applied. It also has speech enhancement for high tones. Now, this is a pre-built Adobe Premiere feature for dialogue, but we thought it might help bring out the animal calls a little further. The volume level is also boosted in this pass. You will still hear some odd digital artifacts in the sounds close to the microphone, but the calls in the background are relatively clean. So here's that. Okay, so for this final clip, our friend and also opening sponsorship announcer for a long time now, <laughs> mm-hmm. years, John Bolin, who was a professional mixer by trade, yes. took one of the calls he heard that was the most in the clear and cleaned it up as best he could. One call, which th- they all were very similar. So this is right. he just picked the one that he felt like was the easiest to clean up by itself. Okay, here's that one two more times. I had a lot of fun kind of messing around with those clips. The mm-hmm. more I listened to them, I played them for my son. He got freaked out. He was like, that's <laughs> freaking me out, dad. You know, just. It's, and this, it this kid's
3: killed everything and video games that you can, uh, the humans yeah. can possibly imagine. Uh, b- <laughs> big boss battles, the famed and feared bat squatch. Uh, yeah. But this made
2: it real for him, huh? You know, and it got the dog's attention too when I was working on it, playing it through the speakers. Yeah. yeah. What do they do? The larger – actually, they were both – because they were up here hanging out with me because everyone else was gone. When everyone else <laughs> leaves the house, they come to my then office. Then you're
3: worthy of finally – Yeah, like, when I'm not liver. This, this idiot knows where the, the papashuka treats are.
2: Yeah, exactly. Okay. But they were very much like looking at the speakers, the head tilts, the whole nine yards – but I don't know. They would do that. You know, they'd probably do that with any natural animal sounds because that's not something they're hearing inside uh, my house. I,
3: I know, but they, you know, they, what I know about your, your canines and especially the, uh, the lovely little Lou is that they will pay attention to some things that you wouldn't expect and then ignore things you think that they would think were important, but yes, not yes, to them. That's they, true. They're,
2: they're hard to, uh, to pin down, but again, these are animalistic sounds. So yeah, they are. I mean, it's clearly an animal. And it sounds like a primate. And by the way, there are no primates native to (laughs) Minnesota, which Tara said. But I also looked at it. Not that I didn't believe her, but I just didn't want somebody else to be like, well, actually. So I looked it up. Nothing. They, the only primates in uh, Minnesota are in zoos.
3: Well, and and no reports of anybody's pet monkeys or a bunch of monkeys escaping and starting their own troop, a planet of the, the apes. Right. If we can find a baseline of agreement, we can agree that these are animal sounds. These are yes. wild animal sounds. Absolutely. Uh, so just reiterating what I said in our discussion here is that to me, these are similar or reminiscent of coyote yips and howls, and they come down out of the hills in Griffith Park. They roam the streets every night, and when they make a kill, it's an eerie cacophony. But here's the thing. Those sound canine, and I've heard them now for (laughs) 30 years here. I know what they are. I know the range of them coyotes and other animals don't go beyond that range. You know what I'm saying? They they don't suddenly start to sound like gibbons because they thought it was cool. Right. This sounds more primate and primate verging into human vocalizations. Right. So look, we're not zoologists here, but what I can tell you is that this does not sound like coyotes to me, which I've heard every night almost for, you know, decades now. Right. Right. And in every manner that they make hunting, Having made a kill, sadly, communication between themselves, I'm no zoologist, but I can tell you that over the years, you, you pretty much hear so many of them and so much of them that it's different when you hear it like this. Because the other thing that's kind of creepy in this case is that if they are hunting, that's a frightening proposition.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's what she said. And you remember cause you heard in that one point she goes, That's a different one, because it must have for triangulation standpoint, it must have yeah. been in a different place. So it seemed like maybe they were corralling something. And the the estimation of yeah. the finding Bigfoot person who also worked at the facility she was at was mm-hmm. that they were hunting deer.
3: Look, you know, as as we all know, gorillas famously are vegetarian and they grow to those massive sizes, but we're talking bigger primate creatures perhaps here but still with the uh the zygomatic muscles and the sagittal arch which means they have a lot of chewing power yeah flatter faces not without the snouts and they you know so they eat tough greens and natural stuff but also who's to say that they don't like a bit of uh, flesh now and again and thank goodness they don't seem to be too interested in human jerky but it's a frightening thing when you're out in the woods. And as a group of hunters might do, is that they're calling to each other and flushing game yes. to catchers, let's say.
2: Yeah, that was the very next thing I was going to say is right. they picked the big one is waiting down at the far end of the <laughs> valley or yeah, whatever. With a
3: massive tree trunk to knock out uh, yeah. whatever's coming his way. But yeah, yeah it, so it makes sense. And that that's what I think freaks people out is the human aspect where they if you just said like, well, they're, you know, we, we've seen some traits and they just seem like misplaced apes, right? Yeah. Gorillas in the mist that just happens to be in Wisconsin and we can feel safe because they're only intelligent to a point. These ones, I think because of the human-like nature of them, that's what freaks people out.
2: And it you know, What do you mean they cut the power? Yeah. (laughs) Coming back to this this idea of this area too was what Tara was talking about. And I was looking at it, the Red Lake area where her tribe is from. Uh, There's the upper and lower Red Lake, like I mentioned. It is huge. It's the 16th largest lake in the country. Mm -hmm. It's the largest natural freshwater lake entirely within the borders of Minnesota, which Tara also said. It obviously, Minnesota bumps up against Lake Superior, but that's a border for it. Red Lake is 440 square miles and it's also entirely within the Red Lake Indian Reservation. Mm-hmm. And remember what she said a few minutes ago, it's not really developed. They haven't let it be developed. And there's not territory like this in the US that's like that, where you've got this big, beautiful area. And I, I love the idea also of her like wanting to get closer to this. And the people at the facility are like, uh, no, we're not going into the woods here. So,
3: well, also, you know, they don't want you screwing up their hunt. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like you see some human hunters out there with their. Their safety, uh, orange and, uh, you know, quietly trying to get some game and you go out there like, Hey
2: buddies, what's going on? Yeah, uh, Yeah. Not good.
3: So at this point, I can't remember if we've talked about Jeffrey Gonzalez, but he was the guy who set up the Bob Gimlin talk in Fresno that we attended. And we've kind of gotten to know him and he has a YouTube channel called paranormal central, but he's got a bunch of clips because he's, uh, his group is the Sangster paranormal society. I believe that's the name of the the paranormal investigation group that he's a part of. And they go into the Sierras there, not too far from where we were, into the gateway of the Sierras. And they have these spots they go to, and they've gotten some amazing sounds. And I wanted to mention that because he has a clip where they were outside of their trailer. They just have this directional microphone going, and it was 15 minutes of this, right? maybe more. Uh, I think maybe he even said it went on all night and it was kind of disturbing because it's hard to sleep. It's so disturbing because how far away are they from the trailer where they could rip the door off, you know? Right. And it sounds just like this where there are calls, there are yips, there's yells and growls and grunts. And it's just a cacophony of stuff going on all around them. And this is a long ways away from Minnesota. We're talking probably the area around Clovis, California, gateway to the Sierras. They, they have places that they go up into the woods and picked up some amazing recordings as a lot of Bigfoot hunters have. And that's the similarity here. If you believe that it is something that is connected to these animals. All right. Well, this next story comes to us from a gentleman who's been listening to the show for a while. He's a professor at Rice University. Very impressive. Uh, At least we were. And it turns out that he may have crossed paths with a ghost. Not just any ghost, mind you, but the
2: ghost of a very famous pioneering scientist. So when we sat down with Professor Boyer, uh, Rich had to step away for a minute. So you're not going to hear him in this conversation, but he will be back for the last one tonight. All right, folks, we are welcoming our guest, Dominic Boyer, Dr. Dominic Boyer, to the show tonight. What I like to say about our listeners, they're all better educated than we are, and this is proof. Dr. Boyer, you had sent in a great story, which we want to get to, of course, but first, why don't you introduce yourself to Astonishing Legends listeners? Hi,
4: everyone. Uh, Dominic Boyer. I'm an anthropologist by training. I teach at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And as I was just saying to these delightful co-hosts that I've been listening to this show for many years, I don't even know how long it is. It's been a while. It's been a while, but it's also been a joy and it's just an honor and pleasure to be with you here today.
2: Well, it's great to have you here with us. You know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. I guess your perspective and having you as a listener means something to us because you're, you're rooted in science and evaluation. And the fact that you've stuck with us through all of our nonsensical stories is, I find, shocking. <laughs>
4: <laughs> That's right. Well, I suppose you could say you're trying, you need a, a change of pace or something. But actually, yeah. I would make the case, if I may, that the kind of work you're doing is actually deeply empirical. But one of the things you're doing that maybe standard garden variety empiricism doesn't do is taking evidence just even sense evidence from unlikely places, not just mm-hmm. you know what you can see with your own two eyes, right, but also you know what you feel, what you hear, what you sense. And I just think that this is a whole other conversation, maybe. But just that Western science has has done one thing really well, but often, you know, at the expense of maybe a more multi-sensory, multi-attentional way of going about things. Yeah. It's
2: interesting. I mean, that's a little bit of what we were trying to get at when we were talking about Tiwanaku and the evaluation of that site and the different the different teams that came through over the years and the ones who did embrace the additional input and the, and then the ones who didn't and how that seems to silo your evaluation a little bit. But I can also see where folks are like, well, if you can't prove it, if you can't write it down and if you can't evaluate it over and over, then maybe it doesn't belong in the equation. But, but we have the freedom to do whatever we want. Cause we're just a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell our listeners a
3: little bit about your expertise?
4: I would say, you know, what I do, and, and it really has, unfortunately, very little to do with the paranormal, I wish it had more to do with the paranormal, is study culture, and in particularly the intersection of culture and politics. And what I really do a lot of work on is energy and environment issues, climate-related issues, all that good stuff. So a lot of the kind of urgent stuff that we're, we're facing on the planet today, but looking at these experiences across the world. I could add one little tiny thing without going on too long, I hope, about where I think energy and spirituality intersect, because I think this is something you have covered. Right. You know, the kind of spiritualist movements, the mesmerist movements of the 19th, early 20th century. It's interesting that just about the time the modern definition of energy was getting hammered out, this idea that energy is work, right? You know, you remember right. that from high school physics. That is kind of something that it was a real cultural transition in the 19th century to thinking about energy as work. It's interesting at the same time that's happening, people begin to get really interested in this sort of idea of a, like a formative spirit at work in the world, a vis viva, something like that. And I, I do think that there's something about the kind of the making of modern industrial society and spiritualism of the 19th century that would be really interesting to look at how those two things yeah. are connected.
2: Oh, that's interesting. And to look at it from that perspective is, that's why it's great to talk to folks like you, because it's its yet another viewpoint on it. And our viewpoints are much more isolated, I think, sometimes. Yeah, just a quick question regarding movements
3: and contemporary eras. Do you see us in one now? And if you do, how would you describe what we're going through as far as our favorite term, the zeitgeist of what's <laughs> uh, a, a belief and, you know, general beliefs in carrying on with energy, because there's, of course, a lot of people that you could say from the metaphysical musings of the 70s and 60s to now, and that it seems like it kind of comes in waves. How would you describe what we're going through now, if anything?
4: I think that's a great question, because I I think something is happening in the zeitgeist and i'm not sure we even have the language to explain what it is it's still kind of happening around us right mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. let me give you an example you know i grew up with carl sagan i'm sure you remember carl sagan <laughs> yeah, of course i watched the cosmos series mm-hmm. just with absolutely rapt attention when i was a kid and you know what it made me feel really good about the future like i loved carl sagan's we're gonna sort out our problems. We're on the cusp of interplanetary exploration. Right. We're just a couple of decades away from fusion reactors, which would end sort of our energy scarcity problems and probably our energy pollution problems forever mm-hmm. in one in one fell swoop, you know? And so I remember growing up with a sense of optimism, and this is in Chicago in the 1970s, and feeling like this was you could look forward to sort of a better world ahead. Right. And I, I really feel like where we are now is in a much more emotionally and intellectually complicated place, right? Because They're still saying, you know, two decades from now, we might have fusion, right? They've been saying that for 50 years. It begins to not ring very true anymore. And we're still thinking about the interplanetary, but now it's just cowboy billionaires who want to go there. It's not the United States or, or the League of Nations together. It feels as though things are coming apart a little bit. And I feel as though that's part of where the anti-science skepticism comes from, just in my sense, is that there's this sense where for a long time, we sort of believed in technology was going going to solve our problems, we believed in progress, and in some ways it feels like we've kind of stalled out or maybe even moved backwards in some ways. And so you see, again, a real upsurge of interest in the spiritual. We could say a lot of things about like the QAnon movement, but there's something like there's a deep spirituality in that movement too that sometimes gets overlooked, where people are looking for signs of divine grace, they're looking for miracles, even in the most unlikely you know containers, let's say. And I th- I think that it's almost as though where science seems to be, and I'm not anti-science myself, I love science, but but this sense that maybe science has hit some impasses, and and they may not even be science's fault. Maybe it's because we're not putting enough towards R and D. You know, maybe right. it's because you know <laughs> we stopped putting so much money into science that we're not getting the same yield out of it. Right, that, that's right. a reason. But maybe it's because of that that people are beginning to turn towards something that's older that's more faith-based. And, and often in times of existential crisis and stress, people do towards religion because it has those answers about the afterlife, right? That science has real trouble
2: with. Wow. I mean, I wouldn't disagree with anything that you said. You're right. It is infinitely more complex. Everything has gotten more complex. I think we're all of reasonably similar ages. So, you know, the same experiences growing up and... Yeah, it's funny because when you think about it, it's like you when you got done watching Cosmos, you were like, "Oh, okay, so that's that's that thing, and that's okay there." Now I'm going to go over here, and every you, you weren't so aware of everything around you all of the time. Additionally, it seems like the also the internet has just overconnected people, and people are oversharing constantly opinions and ideas that maybe they shouldn't necessarily <laughs> be
4: yeah. doing so it's exhausting us like all of those neurotransmitters you know being stimulated constantly by you know tweets and insta and everything like that it's just exhausting
2: it is I think, for yeah for people
4: emotionally even sort of biochemically i think yeah but you know the other thing is like i mean this could just be because i was a nerd but when i would finish an episode of cosmos i sort of felt uplifted i felt like the future yeah. is going to be great i'm so excited about the future and now you know when you think about the future you're thinking global warming, right. food crises, right. huge inequality, violence, maybe extremism, all of these things that like, yeah, they, they were in the 70s, too. I'm not trying to suggest they weren't. <laughs> but, right. right. But you you felt as though you kind of felt secure that the future would be better. And Scott, you know, I've got kids about your age, too. And I worry, you know, I spent a lot of time just worrying about stuff. Yeah. And I'm not sure my parents had to worry about it in the same way.
2: Yeah, when I was younger, I my big fear was nuclear war with Russia. Yeah, which weirdly is poking its head out of the shell again, so. <laughs> it's, well, let's talk a little bit about why we wanted to have you on for tonight's show. You sent in a great story. I was wondering if you would be ready to share that story with our listeners.
4: I am ready. And I think, you know, setting up nuclear war, unfortunately, is exactly the right pivot to this story. Right, right. That's the segue. <laughs> so punchline first, uh, I saw Enrico Fermi's ghost <laughs> when I was two years old, as a matter of fact. Wow. Okay.
2: Let's start with, for folks that don't know who Fermi was. Okay.
4: So Enrico Fermi is part of a group of legendary physicists who were active in the middle of the 20th century. Fermi won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1938. He emigrated just a few months later to the United States, escaping sort of rising extremism in Italy, which was his native country, to come to the United States, where very quickly thereafter, he was enrolled in the project to build the first atomic bomb. I'm not a Expert on Fermi. I know a little bit about him. I think he's got a fascinating life story. And if you want Mm -hmm. to dig into it more, maybe we can try to do that. But what he won the Nobel Prize for was figuring out that if you shoot neutrons at uranium, you can get the uranium to break apart and do nuclear fission. So releasing energy that way, producing new kinds of elements in some cases, it was a breakthrough science, a scientific advance of the mid-1930s that very quickly, because of the geopolitical circumstances of the time, very quickly people wanted to weaponize, which is the tragedy of it. But also, and I don't know if there's room to put this in the show notes, if anybody wants to track down this marvelous little Harper's article from 1940 by a guy named John O'Neill called Enter Atomic Power, he lays out this, again, the sort of cornucopian future where we have all the energy we could possibly want from atomic fission and thinking about all the ways in which that could make the world a better place. So we have the sort of desire to kind of create a weapon but also the idea of creating a kind of utopia with atomic energy. And that's part of it, which is a little hard to reconstruct because you know those of us who grew up in the Cold War know that fear like in our skin, right? We know how yeah. frightened we were. And that amazing movie, which may be, I think, one of the greatest, most impactful pieces of Hollywood, I guess, cinema, I would say in this case, The Day After. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, yes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah,
4: this could be a whole detour right here. <laughs> that was watched by... I don't know how many million, but millions and millions of people watched that, including Ronald Reagan. And they said it was it moved him so much watching this imagination of what happened if there was a hot war that he yeah. actually changed his policies as a result. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. if anyone who says Hollywood can't change the world, yeah, watch the
2: day after. I actually hadn't thought about that film in a while. Yeah. It's a good
4: one. it, it holds up. It's it's frightening. <laughs> it's really frightening. It's a really frightening film. Yeah. Anyhow, Fairby comes to the United States. As a kind of already celebrated world-class physicist, he joins with other expat physicists because as Europe gets more and more difficult, especially for Jewish scholars to, to work in, more and more emigres are coming to the United States, and suddenly the U.S. has some of the best physics talent in the world assembled here. The fear was apparently, and this again, there's probably more to say about, the fear was the Nazis would make the bomb first. And as soon as it became clear that this vision was possible, there were some, again, pretty terrific scientists like Werner Heisenberg who stayed in Germany, despite his colleagues saying, please come to the United States. We don't want to let this regime get the bomb. And they said, no, we're patriotic. We're going to stay. So there was a real fear in 1939, 1940, 1941, this race to be the first country to create the atomic bomb. And Fermi was right in the middle of that set up at the University of Chicago, he's the one who's leading the team as part of the Manhattan Project, which I suspect that's something you guys have probably talked about, but I don't know. Do we need to...
3: No, but we did cover it. Actually, we talked about Fermi, of course, in the Fermi Paradox episode. And also, I believe uh, when it came to the Nazi bell and some of the, uh, the physicists that were mentioned in that, but specifically what we loved in the Fermi Paradox is the paradox or irony of... Fair me saying that at all. It's just well, if there are UFOs out there, where are they coming from? Like, wouldn't be too—it's too far away. How would that make sense? And basically, thinking the idea was kind of ridiculous. But he was saying it while he was at White Sands National Laboratory, or maybe Sandia—I can't remember which exactly the place. But they were a bunch of physicists sitting around a picnic table having lunch. And the reason they were talking about that is because of all the strange, you could say UAPs or UFOs flying around in the skies that were such a buzz that people were commenting on them. So he says, uh, well, all right, let's, let's look at this. If they are coming from other planets, what's the likelihood? How long would it take them to get here, at, even at the speed of light, compared to how far away the other planets are? Does that make sense? We've talked about it a few times here. Also, the other weird place... Is in our Resurrection Mary series because it talks oh. about Archer
2: Avenue, Chicago Pile Number One. That was the the world's first nuclear reactor.
3: Yep, not too far from all the the strangeness, which I'm sure has inspired Stranger Things, about Hawkins and a and a small part of Illinois. That's yes, it's it's near Chicago, but also there's a lot of paranormal activity and arch the Archer Triangle and. The Argo cornstarch factory, and <laughs> just all this all these elements of weirdness, but it's all it's all right there. You can get it all. post some great food, some good Chicago deep dish.
4: <laughs> My mother, who's gonna be a character in this story coming up, grew up very near Archer Avenue. So I don't know if that's oh. part of Now we have to factor this all into oh, yeah. the there Archer Avenue. Everything's
2: yeah. connected. <laughs> but the whole
3: Chicago area is yeah, very rich in a lot of history, you know, especially with with Fermi, and in that respect. A lot going on with the University of Chicago, or if you want to take it to to sci-fi uh, lengths, Hal in two thousand one, I think coming out of uh, Urbana, Illinois and the AI labs there. So yeah, it's all very it's all very interesting, and there's a lot of good background for this. But at this time, though, you're just a child.
4: Oh, I'm not. Yes, I'm not even on the scene.
2: <laughs> so let's let's come back around. Two years old. So
4: when I encounter, what I we have to assume based on other sightings is of this entity is that the ghost of Enrico Fermi, we're flashing ahead to 1972. Okay. Fermi has settled after the war in Chicago in a house on University Avenue on the south side in a neighborhood called Hyde Park, where I grew up. For those of you who don't know Chicago, it's near the Museum of Science and Industry. It's near the University of Chicago. It's where the Obamas live, close to there. The story is my parents, poor folk, honestly, rich in dreams and, and education maybe, but but from pretty poor working class families in Chicago, in graduate school, where even the poor seem poorer somehow. I mean there's no end to the misery. They get an offer from one of my father's professors to house sit his house for the summer. Now this house is Fermi's house. It's the house that Fermi died in. And so he died in 1954 from stomach cancer after a fairly, what seems like a fairly uh, rapid decline at the end. I think they probably caught the malignancy late and then he passed away shortly thereafter. He was only 53 years old. So my parents move in. My mom who describes herself as being someone who's sensitive, psychically sensitive, sensitive to, there's maybe more to say about that also, about growing up in working class Catholic enclaves in Chicago. Her family is Polish and Lithuanian. And these are families where, again, I don't know how much this is the experience of anybody else, but the dead stay with the families in, in various ways. They appear frequently. It's not uncommon for to say, you know, we saw Uncle Stan, maybe we better go pray for him in church, right? He's there's obviously something going on there. So this idea that the dead stay with the living, it's not only part of Catholicism, but I think it is part of Catholicism, and is probably part of the story to an openness to that kind of phenomenon of having the dead coexisting with the living. She gets a very strong negative vibe from this house the moment she walks in. She's not happy being there. She finds certain parts of the house much creepier and unsettling than others. And she says the only place she feels okay in the house is in the kitchen. And she theorizes that this is because the current resident had put, as she put, had formica it to oblivion. It covered every every surface with Formica, <laughs> yeah. which perhaps, and again, you would be a better, so you're experts in this more than I am, is will Formica, you know, in some ways protect you from ethereal energies? I don't know, but maybe you can, <laughs> maybe you can tell me. <laughs>
3: could be the chemicals in it, you know, who knows? we are talking about strange uh, Dow chemicals <laughs> and weird chemistry going on around the area. Uh, one never knows, but there may, there may
4: be a rule about it, yes. So she really can't stand the house, is particularly unsettled by the second floor where the bedrooms are, which of course is inconvenient because you have to sleep, you have to yeah. put your, your baby, because I was a baby, down for naps and things like that. She only feels okay in the kitchen and in the backyard of this house. And the incident that became the story that I wanted to share, because in my life as an anthropologist, I've encountered a lot of people with their stories about the paranormal. But this is the one that's the closest to me, even though sadly, because of my age, I have to hear other people tell me about what I said and did. So she puts me down for a nap on the second floor and then retreats. I'm napping upstairs. She retreats downstairs to the kitchen where she feels better until I call for her. She comes back up again and it's getting me settled out of bed. And I start pointing over her shoulder and I go, there's Papa, there's Papa, there's Papa. And just saying that over and over again. And this chill runs down her spine, knowing that Papa is at the university and there's nobody else in the house. But I'm quite insistent that there's a Papa figure just standing right behind her. Sweeps me up in her arms, runs downstairs, and then spends like the rest of the time until the actual Papa shows up, just like looking nervously from door in you know, doorway to doorway. And that's the core of the story, which is again, by your podcast standards, just a very humble story. I mean, this is so much less, I'm sorry to say than the average fare your listeners would get. <laughs> but it's true, it's authentic. And the other thing I'll say is that in this summer, which my, my mother remembers with just almost like kind of traumatically as being such a difficult summer to live through, she invited her sister to stay with her. her sister, even being more sensitive to psychic phenomena than my mother is, stayed with her one night only, could only make it through one night in the house, slept on the second floor, was just beset by terrible dreams and anxieties and said it's one of the worst nights I've ever had. There is some energy here in this house that I can't get my my head around, but I just can't be near it. And so she sort of runs off.
3: this is brandon adams from durham north carolina thank you for listening to astonishing legends let's get back to the show before we go on i'm sure others are wondering how do you know or why is it felt that it was the spirit or ghost of enrico fermi
4: a very good question for us. And it only it only emerges later. My mother never saw this entity. She felt it very strongly. Okay. I asked her, did it feel malevolent? And she thought about it for a minute and said, well, maybe not malevolent, but very strong. And so I don't know. Like, at what point is is a strong... And you've had these reactions in yourself. At what point is are you feeling the strength of something paranormal or a sort of sense of malintent? I don't know. Right. Maybe Maybe we can think about that. So they get out of that house that summer. Interestingly... The people who end up buying the house later on are anthropology professors at the University of Chicago where I'm doing my graduate school. So there's this whole very sad little, you know, <laughs> very small <laughs> world you're beginning to see in my life. And they have their graduate students over to sit their house in the summer too. So this pattern repeats itself, right? Maybe it says something about professors at the University of Chicago. I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that up to others to judge. Okay. So this is where when I'm an adult now, talking to the people who are house-sitting, this is when I begin to hear about the appearances because the appearances are always the same. They're, again, a a feeling of being watched, a feeling of being observed, not necessarily with malintent, but with a a deep emotional sense, often a sense of sadness. And often when people are on doing something else, they'll turn and they'll see the entity for a second watching them. And the thing that's striking about the entity, and I think, Forrest, you raise a really good question. There probably were people who lived in this house before Fermi. It's not guaranteed that it's his ghost. The ghost is always described as a man of about Fermi's height, wearing a three-piece suit. And if you look you know, sort of around on the internet and look for pictures of Fermi, you see he's often wearing a woolen three-piece suit. So again, as far as I know, no real effort to talk, no moved objects, just the sense of being watched. And the thing that resonated for my mom is when one of her friends said, can you imagine a spirit that might be more tortured than Enrico Fermi's? Here's the guy who brought the bomb into the world. That's got to come with some kind of mixed feelings, right? Yeah. And however we think about what an entity like this might be up to in this situation, there certainly is a case to be made. You might have uh, some kind of restless or, again, in the Catholic tradition, a kind of purgatorial situation of being trapped, you know, in between where you should be wanting to go and, and where you've been.
3: That's a fascinating angle. I mean, uh, Oppenheimer saying, I have become death and the, the guilt. But then again, the burden in that, if we didn't do it, certainly the Nazis were getting close to it a lot more than I think a lot of people want to admit. Somebody, it was going to happen. This war was going to be unleashed upon the world. But do you want your name stamped on that? and the guilt that may be keeping him behind, but also as the nature of the entity or spirit being observant, watchful, measuring perhaps, and uh, maybe fits with a scientist. Yeah. But there's something, and again, there's something there that, I like that clarification That is, it's maybe not malevolent, but it's heavy. Mm-hmm. And so you would have to maybe talk to people who knew him about his personality. Well, was he a serious guy? There's some people that you meet, as you know, I wouldn't say intimidating, and well, some are, but you meet them and it's like, well, that dude is heavy. Intense. Yeah, they're intense. And why not have that uh, type of energy, speaking of, uh, transfer to to the next world? But also, yeah, that's interesting in that if it was him,
2: maybe there is something here that he's hanging around for. Well, there's that's my question, you know, in terms of types of hauntings and spirits that people see, do you feel like this was... Or or does your family feel like this was more of an echo or, you know, leftovers, the venerated, uh, as Forrest always says, the stone tape theory, that sort of left behind thing, as opposed to a, you know, if you can classify these things at all, crisis apparition, which honestly to come down with stomach cancer suddenly at a relatively young age and be gone, that probably wasn't too much of a, can you just imagine all the things that he was planning to do with uh, his career and his future and to be robbed of that at a relatively young age was there a sense that it was interactive, or more like a you know some stamp from the past? You think
4: putting together all of the sightings that I'm aware of, and again I'm gathering together the ones from my family and also from my friends. You know, uh-huh. so we're talking about several sightings, often with the sort of the same characteristics. And I love the fact that you've got this language because this is what I love about your show is you've got a language to talk about these things that are very difficult to talk, right. to talk about, right? You know, the stone tape, whatever. I'm learning right. this from you. This is where right. I'm learning this. The way I put it to my mom, because I tried to formulate this in a way that she would she would, she would, would get it. And I said, you know, is it more like the footprint that was left behind or is it the active feet that are walking around? Mm. And she thought about that too. And she said, it felt to her like it was the feet. It felt to her like it was a presence it was an intentional presence, and I think the later sightings or encounters that I've heard about are all in the sense of a curiosity or a sadness, or perhaps a, you know, a certain voyeurism, even of just like liking sure. to watch the young and the living at their at their life, and maybe that's where some of the sadness is. Because I think Scott, to your point, yes, this is where maybe personality comes in, and I don't know whether there's something to say about this. Does the personality you have in life in any way influence like where you might be? in an afterlife setting. Right. What I found out about Fermi is that apparently he was a very positive person. Everyone talks about him having a pretty sunny disposition, being generous and kind, but also being super intense. There are all these stories of him, he would give people a penny. Anyone could get a penny from him, which probably, you know, had a little bit more buying power back in the (laughs) 50s and 40s than it does today. Penny doesn't sound like much. He would give anyone a penny who could find any flaw in his English. You know, anybody who could find he was very wanted to be very precise in his English. If anyone could saw him making mistake, he'd give them a penny. So those little games he was playing. And then you hear these stories also about where, you know, he's at a dinner party and somebody is cutting the bread and he's like, No, I've got a better way to cut the bread. Right. And just, you know, a little bit a little bit compulsive, a little bit kind of controlling. Right. And again, I mean, I can't imagine anything That's more challenging to one's sense of control than death, right? That's the ultimate we imagine, and in that sense, the idea of being without control—I don't know—does that create a kind of existential dilemma that traps people there?
3: I was about to mention that because you know, imagine somebody, and again, you'd have to know. Everybody paints with broad brushes. The personalities of of scientists, and certainly, I'd I'd read a a really good in-depth article with a poll a few years ago about how many. Scientists, people, you know, bona fide scientists, soft sciences and hard sciences, and and how many of them were spiritual people, considered themselves that way, even believed in in God or had a a Christian background or just in general spirituality, but told nobody because that doesn't go well within your own circles of of your peers, so they kept it to themselves, and it was a surprisingly large number when you pull them blindly, but. You know, I don't know about Fermi's perspective, but you could say if he's kind of poo-pooing the ideas of of UFOs, or just saying like, well, that's just people's imagination. Imagine once you die, then it's like, whoa, I'm on the other side. What is going on? Like, what am I wrong about? And again, having to give himself a spiritual penny because maybe if he didn't think there was a, <laughs> an afterlife, it's like, wow, I was wrong about like what's going on here. I can't figure this out, and then that's. That existential crisis is trapping him.
4: I really like that for us because they, they have these descriptions of why he was so good in wartime mm-hmm. is because he was able to just focus in on the problem at hand and solve it on the spot. He didn't put it off till later. He didn't need yeah. to think about things. He was incredible at solving problems in real time.
0: Oh, and that's part of
4: like what allowed him to, to be as successful in the context of the Manhattan Project as it was. Wow. And just mm-hmm. like you're saying, what if you were in the middle of a riddle you can't solve where... All of your scientific training probably doesn't add up to like, maybe the compass you need to navigate this particular situation. He's trying situation. to figure
2: out how to get back. Yeah. Think about it in the context of Interstellar, you know, which we bring up too many times, but just that towards the end of that, when he's, he's coexisting in a different time or dimension really, but at the same time, maybe he's like, it's like that meme with John Travolta where he's like looking around. He's like, wait, where am I now? Mm. Yeah. So here, let me ask you this. So were you were only in the house for a summer? That's it, just a summer. Later, then, over time, because
4: it was part of the sort of anthropology community at Chicago, I was back in there many times for parties okay. and events. But, you know, again, when there's a lot of people in a house, I yeah. don't think you get these kinds of encounters typically. It tends to be quiet on your own, yeah. at least the kinds of spirits I'm thinking of, because I know other contexts where there'll be sort of a resident house spirit where the family that comes in sort of has to come, again, this is, sorry, a detour, but it's a sort of similar case elsewhere in in Hyde Park where a family moved into a house about the same age. These houses were built in the late 19th, early 20th century. The spirit of the, presumably of the owner who had built the house still lived in the house. And when they first moved into the house, my friend's mom, who again, was willing to think about these things and take them seriously, said she felt often as though there was someone following her around the house, up and down the stairs, And she felt like the presence and the presence sort of growing closer and closer until she sort of had to shout at the air and said, yes, we live here now. (laughs) We're taking good care of your beautiful house. Right. Please leave us alone. And that was it. That was kind of whatever little bit of interdimensional work that had to be accomplished there was accomplished. And then they weren't troubled by it anymore. So. I wonder if that's sort of a similar situation here. And I don't know for a fact, because I don't know who lives in the house now, whether this is ongoing. That begs the question,
3: though, did he, Fermi, have the house built for him or did he purchase it from a a previous owner? Was he just a a renter? What was his connection to that building, if you know?
4: So he was not the first owner. It's impossible because the house, I think, was built in the first decade of the 20th century. And so he Mm -hmm. would have been just a few years old then. So it had a life. And again, whenever there's a life, you can begin to say, well, maybe there's an entity, but that doesn't mean it's Enrico Fermi. I think, well, it's a good story, for one thing. But also I think the, the visual evidence, the visual experiences of people do seem to suggest that this is that there is a match between what we know of how Fermi dressed and presented himself mm-hmm. and how the entity is presenting itself here too. So that suggests to me that, you know, there's probably an odds better than even odds chance that it is connected to him, plus he died in the house. And as far as we know, that's the only person we know to have died in the house. Mm. One thing we were gonna talk about before was the idea of a kind of a guilty Guilty conscience yeah, here. Yes. And so I wanted to look into that a little bit. And uh, there was a recent, relatively recent biography of Fermi by a man named David Schwartz, which is called, I think, something like The Last Man to Know Everything or something like that. And it says that it sort of asks this question directly. And I'll just quote from this interview because I just copied it for, for our conversation. Mm-hmm. What impact did his role in nuclear weapons have on his inner life? He never spoke about it. He never wrote about it. We don't know what he thought about it. But after 1951, he never again worked for the government. That's shortly after the Soviets proved themselves capable of having a bomb, just when the Cold War that we all became so terrified of in later years began to sort of really get going. And Fermi, I think, probably had some at least concerns about how this energy would be used. And his widow then became very active in what was called the Atoms for Peace movement, in the later 1950s under Eisenhower and other people who were really trying to pivot from the sort of military applications of nuclear energy towards domestic applications. And those are the days when people were thinking, maybe our trains will be nuclear powered. We got we got them in the subs, you know? Why right. not our airplanes? Why not yeah. our cars? Why not our toaster ovens? Like go back to the 1950s and like look, look at some of the things people thought they were going to put nuclear reactors in and it's kind of hilarious.
2: Right.
4: <laughs> right. But I, I have to imagine that Fermi, I mean, as a person of conscience, which he was, and sort of feeling like he had to participate in the making of the bomb to stave off the even worse scenario that the Nazis got the bomb, in which case, right, right, you know, even worse, more dystopian scenario, probably still felt at the end of the day, like he had unleashed something. And imagine the response, I mean, I don't know, like, imagine you were somehow personally responsible for unleashing the most terrifying weapon the world had ever done i mean they should cover this in the marvel films don't you think they should like you know have the the (laughs) people coming the conscience and saying you know how did i do this
3: that was my earlier point is that yes maybe somebody else was going to figure it out i can't remember the physicist that was a contemporary of einstein but he was the one who wrote the letter saying like hey you better pay attention to this to roosevelt and the only reason that that letter was taken seriously is because of einstein insisting that hey this guy's got his finger on the pulse over here in germany and you can stick your head in the sand but if you don't do anything they're going to come up with this and then it got serious so but in fermi's case like i was saying that's all well and good but do you have to be the guy you know do you have to be the person who is part of that much like yeah robert oppenheimer I think suffered terrible guilt for that because at some point it's not your thing anymore. It's just out there. It's just this beast out there in the world and the beast could be used for good if you're responsible for it in some cases and others say no way. There's no aspect of this, which is good
4: yeah and as we found, like even the good aspects of nuclear energy come sometimes with very high costs. You sure know, sure the, that have that are unexpected and just have to do with the massive amounts of energy that are being managed in these in these situations. Right.
3: We've said on the show before, a house that's purported to be haunted will not have activity for some residents and increased activity for others, it seems. It depends also if you're paying
4: attention. Right. So interestingly, the, some of the people who lived in the house later, these professors that I mentioned, apparently were not willing to talk about this entity. It's right. not clear whether that <laughs> meant they didn't acknowledge it, but they weren't willing to say they believed in it. And so the students who really did, you know, sort of believe in their experiences and share them often felt like, you know, they were again being be put in this sort of like fabulous camp of, oh, you know, what an imagination you have, you know? <laughs>
3: right, Yeah, right. everybody's afraid of that. Unless you're a parapsychologist and then you can, I mean, you might be allowed to study that, but then I've seen a lot of interdisciplinary side-eye, you could say, or just like oh, those guys. That also comes, we were talking about trends and waves. It's something that Russell Targ, the physicist said, is that it used to be the parapsychologist studying ghosts and consciousness and existing outside of your your own head. And now the physicists have taken over the study of psi, and now consciousness studies is a huge hot topic. Where before it'd be maybe kind of scoffed at. Yeah, it's like if you if Fermi could listen in on all the academic talk, maybe that's what's keeping him around too. It's like he's getting journal updates for free, just being a ghost there.
4: I mean, my gut feeling is kind of what is something similar to what Scott said earlier on, which is just an incredibly ambitious. Person who, yes, he had won the Nobel Prize, so there's nowhere else to go in physics except there. So (laughs) it was just victory lap after victory lap after that, right? Right. But I mean, I feel like this personality type from what what I've read and the biographies and stuff suggests a man who had a lot more to do, you know, was just getting into high energy physics, was just building those cyclotrons out west of Chicago at Argonne National Lab that would later, you know, help us to find all the little bits and pieces of the universe, that was all work he was helping to pioneer too, and probably my sense of the sadness is probably that that brilliant life being cut short and and wanting to hold on to it, right? Wanting to hold on to, you know, an amazing life.
3: The YOLO FOMO. He's got the uh, fear of missing yeah. out, and his his one stuck life now is only being able to look back and hoping that uh, somebody comes along that is talking about something interesting that he can eavesdrop on, be the fly on the wall. And and then who knows, maybe there's a, (laughs) just a slightly, not mischaracterizing the guy, but just it's his own version of big brother, right? He's, he's getting to, to watch people kind of come in and pass through and live their lives.
4: So I feel like the lesson for the audience in this is if you want to guarantee a relatively smoother transition to whatever comes next is actually not to excel too much, but just to kind of live <laughs> a, a quieter, you know, right. possibly more mediocre life. Yes. One that you're like, oh, it's okay. I did that one. Maybe the right. next time around will be a little bit better. <laughs> right. like that's probably more the... The thing you want to be. That's the message. That's the vibe you want.
2: I I did have one or or two other questions. Like in terms of this, you were very young. Is this a memory that you have or do you only know about it because your family has told you about it later in life?
4: This has been one of those family stories that I've heard about you know since oh, remember when he you saw the ghost right? I feel like I've got a decent memory for for my youth, but this yeah. is not something I remember. I actually remember some things that happened around that time, but not this specifically. And when I asked my mom about that, I was, well, she's like you thought you saw your dad, you thought you were seeing your dad. It wasn't you know in any way a traumatic memory. She felt as though maybe this sort of speaks to this not being a hostile energy. I seemed to be happy enough in the house. I wasn't scared. I wasn't crying. I wasn't showing up with mysterious cuts and bruises. This was not a Sally House scenario here. This right. was, you know, everything was pretty tranquilo for the most part. And <laughs> But my mom, for whatever reason, was very alert to this. And again, that's why I wanted to mention her background, her family background, the sort of ambient Catholicism of yes. the ethnic neighborhoods of the Southwest side of Chicago, because I do think there's, there's a there's a relationship to this to the afterlife there that was more intimate than how most of us, you know, in modern Western life conceive it.
3: Do you have family photos you could share with us that we could post to the website, perhaps?
4: Oh yeah, I could I could send some photos from that from that time period. Yeah. That would be I'd great. Be happy to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to. And again, you know, I think it's it's been a nice to sort of think through these things with mm-hmm. you because I do find that one of the, the nice things about this, the world that you've created, the network you've created through this podcast, is it's a place you can talk about these experiences where you don't necessarily feel like you're a crazy person. Yeah, uh, There's course. a degree of acceptance and empathy and understanding that is really refreshing because, I mean, come on, I mean, and I'm telling you this not just as a person, but as a social scientist too, the abundance of evidence of some kind of afterlife existence is so Massive. Isn't that the message of your podcast in a way? Yes. Just yeah. Appreciate the fact like take a minute to appreciate this world is filled with wonder. And in the in these hard times, these existentially challenging times that we're living in, there's sort of never been a more important time to draw upon that wonder. Because right. part of that wonder is being able to actually like fashion a different kind of world, right? Yeah.
2: If you yeah. can do I, it in the
4: imagination, maybe we can do it in reality.
2: There's a part of me that thinks okay, here's what has We did cover the Fermi paradox on the show. We are known to be open-minded in this plane of existence. It's possible we're known to be open-minded in other planes as well. And I can't help but sometimes wonder a little bit after these years, and we we did this call for stories, and you call in, and sometimes I wonder if Fermi isn't in the driver's seat and wanted the world to know, at least the world that lists the portion of it that listens to our show, that he was still around or he would made himself present after he had passed away. And that we're all just being manipulated.
4: One of the reasons that it'd be worth sharing the story here is because when I was searching for Fermi's ghost, I couldn't find anybody who had written about this story. Haunted Hyde Park, like, and people, it's like, it's it's such a small little intimate story, but it's the kind of story that I I imagine everybody's got in their family a story like this, right? And that's when, when you think in aggregate, there's no way you can deny that all of these things are going on.
2: Well, I have one last question for you. That's a question I've been wanting to ask someone in your position and with your credentials for quite some time. Do you go by Dr. Boyer, (laughs) Professor Boyer, (laughs) Dominic? How should we refer to, if we have someone on like you that has a doctorate? But as also, I would take it a professor. How would you prefer to be referred to?
4: Well, I think it's it's a very nice kind of honorific to say doctor or professor. And I think you know, especially in the student situation, the hope right. is that they they show you the respect to use your doctor, or your professor, which I think of as kind of interchangeably. But if you're in Germany, for example, hmm. you're either professor or doctor or professor doctor or professor. <laughs> Professor, doctor, doctor. There's a lot of different permutations there. Oh, really? Because in Germany, like, those things stack. Like, you, you know, yeah. you want to make, get credit for all the doctors you okay. have. And, and so... So there you'd have a German guest on. And if you didn't say Professor Doctor Doctor, they might be oh, what about my other doctor.
2: You know, oh, right? what about
4: my <laughs> 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 Giving me <laughs> short shrifter. But for me, especially with you two gentlemen, I think we're on a first name basis now, I hope so. Okay, yeah, of I, course, of course. I hope you'll think of me as a friend you could you could come back in touch with if you have. If there's any questions Wonderful. that come up you think an anthropologist might be able to shed some light on. Absolutely. Thank
2: you so much. And thanks for taking the time to come on. And thanks for sending your story in. Please tell Enrico Fermi that we are we're glad to have him on as well. Oh, by the way, you said you had a podcast. Are you still producing? Yes.
4: Yeah, we brought it back. So, if again, this is uh, for those on this in the audience who might be interested in environmental issues, energy issues, energy media culture issues. We have a podcast called "Cultures of Energy," where we bring together scientists, activists, writers like Jeff Vandermeer, for example, of "Annihilation," uh, as well as uh, Gail Simmons from the Bravo Show. (laughs) <laughs> Top chef. Right. Top chef is that's so long ago too. Anyway, yeah. we have all sorts of people coming and talking about environmental issues and the tone of it is we try to keep it it's it's There's like details and stuff, but we try to keep it a little bit light and conversational too, because part of it is, you know, if you're doing environmental work these days, it's a pretty glum space and a pretty anxious space. And so as you've heard from my attitude is like, if you don't bring some joy into the world, there isn't a future that's worth living anyway. So, you know, joy is one of the forms that justice can take and and the future can take. So we need strive to leaven the heavier conversations with a little bit of silliness. So. Okay. Fantastic. So Cultures of Energy, yeah. wherever cultures you Cultures of Energy, podcasts. you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, all of the usual platforms.
2: All right. Excellent. Well, Dr. Professor Dominic Boyer. <laughs>
4: uh, you missed a couple of professors.
3: Uh,
2: that's uh,
4: professor, all
3: right. Professor, P- doctor, yeah, professor, put, you put doctor. the PhD at the end. So uh, great.
2: Thank you again for joining us.
4: Thank you. It's been a, it's been a great pleasure.
2: So to me, man, a lot of this story does feel a lot like Interstellar. I mean, (laughs) listen, what happens when you stop thinking of ghosts as ghosts? When you discard the way that we perceive them in our society Mm. and how we think about ghosts, what if there's something more to them than just being a spooky memento mori?
3: I think, as we've always said, people like uh, to be very reductionist here. It's like, it's just one thing. A ghost is just Casper. It's just uh, this or that. As a kid, that's what you're told, right? And all spirits are ghosts or whatever, or all ghosts people see are past people. And now I've come to believe that it could be a, a multitude of things that we see when we see that. It could be an echo. It could be something actually pretty mundane that is just that released trapped energy that you're seeing of people and places. And actually, that was a little bit of the idea of the chronovisor, because I was adding that to the website page for Mel's Hole. I had to remind myself every once in a while, and it's just a fun little thing, and you, you read it, and it's like, that's what it's picking up on, that energy, that trapped right. electromagnetic energy of an event with the images and maybe the trapped audio and this and that, and instead of just going by and you having to experience it as it's being released into the current atmosphere here, here's a device that's able to tune that in. Now, that all might be a bunch of baloney. (laughs) It probably is. But here, when you see somebody pop up that is recognizable, somebody who lived in the house, somebody who's famous, and again, that's what a lot of ghost hunters like to say, And a lot of uh, skeptics will like to say, it's like, well, that person never lived here. That person didn't die in the house, so it can't be them. And so, therefore, that story is baloney, right? It can't be a ghost. Nobody died here. Well, that's that reductive thinking. These are the rules that we've set on it. And I don't think uh, there are any templates or things you can lay over. It could be a ton of different things. What I like about this, though, is... (laughs) I don't know if it's cruel or not, but it's the idea of somebody. Again, I don't know his mind. He may have been a very spiritual person, Fermi, and he. We don't know much about, or at least uh, we didn't come across much about his personal spiritual beliefs, if there were any. But I like the idea of somebody just being surprised, (laughs) like like Doctor Stephen Hawking. I would love it if he just like, oh, a ghost? What? Uh, No, I don't believe in this stuff. That's silly. I told everybody there's nothing after you die. You just are a moldering in the ground and that's it. And that's what I went out on. And it turns out I I have to admit I'm wrong. Right. I don't know if it's schadenfreude, whatever it is. It's just that, uh, well, it's a pleasant surprise. Guess what? You're not a moldering in the ground. You have an existence somewhere else. And yeah. uh, you don't have to put up with the uh, the baloney and the physical problems that you did here on Earth. So enjoy yourself, sir. And just keep staring at people taking baths and going to the bathroom.
2: I can't remember what. The, there was a psychic that told me once about that or us. I think somewhere I came across that. I think it was Rebecca that,
3: Fearing that you're talking about. Or
2: maybe it was just saying on the other side, they just, they just don't care about that. They don't well, care what you're doing in the bedroom <laughs> no. alone or with other people or pooping or like that's not even... There's no cross-section. I would tend to agree with that in that uh, you look
3: at the pattern set here in life. I certainly don't care to see anybody doing all that. When yeah. you're walking your dogs, do you care to see them pooping? I know.
2: And they don't no. care. They're like, hey, no, I got to do trying to give them a little modicum of privacy. <laughs> yeah, now, you do. Know, turn away for a moment.
3: Yeah, you don't want to be staring at them because there are some creepy people in life who would like to see that. Now, I don't know yeah. where they are now, <laughs> you know, or, or, I feel or like this in the afterlife. conversation
2: has taken a turn, but.
3: Oh, it's all taken a turn. To I, the it's worst. gone too far. Yeah. Well, the, this is my point, though, is that if this really is fair to me, and who knows if it is or not, there seems to be some something there that's some kind of energy. Well, we don't really talk about celebrity ghosts that much. We, and certainly we have it on the show here, just not come up. So yeah. uh, here's one. And I, and I like that it's one of the most brilliant scientific minds of our time.
2: The Chicago Pile one that we mentioned, by the way, and I can't remember if we elucidated this, but it was the world's first artificial nuclear reactor. And he- right created that. He invented that. Yeah. So every, yeah. all the nuclear power, the nuclear powered submarines and warships and the bombs, all that stuff all came from his work. And yeah. when you think about that and you think about how driven he was and the fact that he died kind of young and then how controlling he was, you know, I know the best way to slice the bread. I, he gave a penny to anyone <laughs> that said he, his English was flawed. Right. All that control and that drive. And I love just uh, Professor Boyer, Dr. Dr. Boyer, Mm -hmm. as a young (laughs) two-year-old just being like, Papa, Papa, Papa. It's like, (laughs) wow. And that's Enrico Fermi. And that's in the house that he died in. And he did die in it. And you're right. Right. We can't say, oh, these rules don't matter in this, but they do matter in that one. But it does tie together.
3: No, but here's the irony of that. Like I said, when we came across this with uh, Bathsheba Sherman, and it's like, well, it can't be her. She didn't die in the house. Maybe that is the case. I'm not, I don't know. But my point is that are they locked and trapped in some space maybe they are and in this case uh, maybe they can roam around right uh, now there's a joke meme it's uh, <laughs> that uh, a good friend of ours uh, said uh, and it's a ghost haunting this guy in the bathroom he's like stop that you know you're a ghost you can go anywhere <laughs> and then the next the next cartoon panel is them on a cruise right but again the angle on this story that i like is what kind of what you just mentioned is that here's a guy who was very much in control of his existence and his intellect and all this. And now he doesn't know what's going on. And maybe that's why he's just looking around and it seems like an eternity for us, but for him, it could be five minutes like, whoa, 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 what just happened? Where where am I? Right. So my last thought here, again, it it may be an answer to Fermi's question (laughs) or the Fermi paradox for his own sense of spirituality or lack thereof, in that he received an answer But it's finally an answer he doesn't understand. And that concept for me can be best encapsulated in a a quote that we've said on the show before. And it comes from philosopher John Dryden and writer. Death in itself is nothing, but we fear. To be, we know not what, we know not where.
2: Yeah, that's a good one.
3: So our last story of the evening does share a little common ground with the first one in that there's a similar implied idea. And we have thoughts on that. But first... Let's listen to Tom Delaney's story.
2: All right, folks, we would like to welcome Tom Delaney to the show. Tom, you'll see here Mr. Richard Haddam, uh, who's just finishing up some sushi. And say hello, Rich.
6: Hello, Tom. Great to meet you. Great to meet you, Rich. Then we have,
2: of course, Forrest Burgess in the ancient library Mm -hmm. and me with the fake brick wall behind me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? And you were telling us off the air you've been listening to the show for a few years.
5: Yep, yeah, For three years, I've been listening to the show. It basically happened. My wife went into to work telling them about my experience that I'm going to tell you about. It was during the time that you were broadcasting the Patterson Gimlin film and, and the woman <laughs> that worked with my wife said, oh, they, he has to listen to Astonishing Legends. So that's about when I started listening to you. So okay, it all, great. It all came about from this this episode that I'm going to tell you about.
2: Wow. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background. What, what do you do? Okay. So I'm in IT. I
5: work for Corteva. That's an offshoot of the Dow DuPont merger. There's three companies, Dow DuPont and Corteva. Corteva is the agricultural offshoot of that merger. Yeah, I'm an avid hunter, fisherman. i go turkey hunting every year. I go deer hunting every year and I go fishing all the time. So, <laughs> okay. So I'm often in the woods. Yeah. Is, is basically what I would say. So let's hear your story. Just to start it off. Like, so I never had any great fear or any, even thoughts of anything paranormal. Like what I listen to on your show now, nothing really, I kind of believe in ghosts. I always have, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd like when you have your Ouija board episodes. I can't really <laughs> listen to those because they kind of scare me too much. Yeah. So,
4: <laughs> yeah, they're so creepy. I
5: do believe yeah. in that kind of stuff a little bit, but for the things like that people see in the woods, like Sasquatch, and to me, that was like the Loch Ness Monster. Mm-hmm. I kind of hoped that it existed, but I didn't have any real grand thoughts. I many times walked many miles back in the woods all by myself with no fear. Right. And no, nothing ever happened. I was, you know, mm-hmm. it was fine, you know? So right. I've had two experiences. One was 10 to 15 years ago and one was four years ago. I went back mm-hmm. and looked at the the date stamp on the picture that I took, that I sent you. Yes. It was from four years ago. It was, it was 2018. It was okay. May of 2018. You want to start chronologically? Would that be? Yeah. yeah, let's do that. We can start chronologically. So I went deer hunting by myself, up in central PA. That's a, for me, that was a three and a half hour drive. And I started in the morning, got there at noon, probably got out in the woods somewhere around two. And this walk that I was going to walk, I was hunting a six mile by 10 mile area. So 60 square miles, no houses, there, there's game trails and there's game fields for 60 square miles. But this one area, you parked at a, at a down area, at like a big parking area down at the bottom. And you just walked a straight walk on a game trail, basically. It's 10 foot across. And you walked it for a couple miles into the woods and it came to a game field. So I thought by myself, that's as safe as I'm going to get. I'm not going to get lost. That's what I was worried about. That's why I hunted this area. So I walked a couple miles, two, two and a half miles up this straight road. It was up a mountain. So the whole way it was up and I get to the game field and I walk about halfway down the edge of the game field, kick in 20 yards. And that's where I hunted. And basically I hunted until dark. Now in Pennsylvania, you're only allowed to hunt until sunset, but in Delaware, you can hunt until a half an hour after sunset. So I hunted probably longer than I should have. And it was completely dark when I got down. Was very dark. I didn't get a deer. I saw a couple deer. I saw a turkey. I saw some game, but I didn't get anything. I don't know what I was ever thinking, like what I was going to do if I got something way up there, because I was young and stupid. (laughs) I just, (laughs) I just did it. I don't know what I was thinking, but I would never do it again. Right. So I get down. I had a portable tree stand. Put it on my back. I had a bow that had in my left hand. You know, I'm looking like the hurdy gurdy man walking out of the woods. I come down the edge of the field and I hit the trail. So if you think about it in your mind's eye, you, you have this game field and this trail coming down and then that corner is all woods, is all mm-hmm. is all woods, that corner that I'm about ready to hit. And I was no more than two or three feet away from this corner where what seemed to me was a, a deer that just exploded from this corner. It was only two or three feet away from me. I almost had never been as close to a deer that mm-hmm. exploded. I've seen deers. You know, run away in the woods. Yeah. And that's what I thought this was. And it just crashed through the woods down the edge of this field, the other edge, not the edge I hunted. It just maybe for 60 or 70 yards, it just crashed through the woods. I thought, wow, that was a big deer. So I sort of stood there until it stopped running. And then I just continued down this trail. And it wasn't very long. It was 20 or 30 seconds where I noticed I could hear it coming back. It was like kind of. It wasn't crashing back at me, but it was walking and and breaking branches now and then coming back towards me. I said, huh, that deer is coming back, right? And I wasn't that alarmed. You know, I just thought it was a deer. Again, back then, the thought of Sasquatch or or Bigfoot or anything paranormal never, ever came into my head. It just didn't. That just didn't come into my head back then. Mm -hmm. So I'm walking along and this thing settles in about 30 yards behind me and about, fifteen yards off the trail I'm walking on. He's kind of to my left and behind me. And I think it's a deer. And so I stop and it stops. And I'm sure you've probably heard this story many times, right? Because <laughs> now that it's happened, I've heard it many times of other people this happened yeah. to. So I start walking, it start walking. I'm thinking, dear, can you just please run away? Like I <laughs> you're you're making me a little nervous, right? Right. So it start walking, I'd start walking, I'd stop, it would stop. This went on for about a mile. I had about two miles to go from that field to get down to my car. I'm right on a road. So during that first mile, I recognized that this thing did not have four legs. So you can hear the cadence in your mind's eye. You can hear, you know, step, 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 or you actually see it in your mind's eye, this thing walking. And I said, That thing doesn't have four legs. I said, It, it must be a deer. That had one of its legs shot off is what Mm. I my mind never went away from it being a deer right until a little bit later because when I was I was about halfway and this thing took three distinct kind of slow steps just one two three just like that and it went from being thirty yards back to being fifteen yards back and he's again still fifteen yards in the woods and I said out loud I said nope that's too close and I turned around. And I walked back 15 yards. So now I should be 15 yards away from him, him in the woods, me on the road. And I didn't use it up until that point, but I had a mini mag flashlight. And I turned it on like thinking, hey deer, now I got you. I'm gonna see the deer and I'm gonna run him off. That's what I thought I was gonna do. I turned it on. I looked for four minutes. Yeah, I looked at every twig, every leaf, nothing. Then I I said, I I took a two or three steps away from it And I turned around real quick and ran back to try to scare it, nothing. And I did that two more times and it never, nothing moved and I didn't see anything. And I thought, well, if it was a a deer, deer aren't smart enough to shut their eyes. Right. And, And neither are like bear. I never, bear never came into my head anyway, but I just, I always thought it was a deer for some reason. But then I said, well, I couldn't find it. I couldn't make it move. So then I just turned around and started walking. But I know it was more, I had more anxiety over it because I, I had a buck knife in my fanny pack and I took the buck knife out. I held it in my right hand open and I had the bell in my left hand and I put the mini mag in my mouth. I never shut the light off. <laughs> and then we played this, this stop and go cat and mouse game pretty much for the rest of the way down the hill. And every now and then I would take the mini mag out of my mouth and I would say, You think you're sneaking up? I would talk to this thing. I said, I can hear you. Welcome back there. You're not. And I was doing it to calm my own nerve. And I was calling it a dumbass as well. I was saying. dumbass, you think you're sneaking up on me, but I can hear you back there. Again, was doing this to calm my own nerves. When I got to about 100 yards away from the car, the hill walked down to my car. So it went like from a ridge and it walked down to my car and it stopped, it stopped following me. So I walked down to the car, I opened up the back of the car, I threw everything in the car as fast as I could. And usually I'm very meticulous with taking my clothes off and putting (laughs) Them in a scent free bag. And I threw everything in the back of the car. I jumped in the the front, locked the door, and I said, I'm going to live. I never let myself get scared until I was actually sitting in the front of the car. So there was a cell phone in my car and it was a flip cell phone, flip top, or whatever they call it. Mm -hmm. And I called my brother in law. I told him this whole story. And he said, Oh, it was probably a bear. And I said, Well, a bear, I would see its eyes shine, same as a deer. He said, Maybe it was a mountain lion. I said, I would see a mountain lion's shine, <laughs> and it never occurred to me what what it was. It never, for years, for years, I told this story around like campfires when people were telling scary stories. You know, like I would tell that like, I had a strange thing happen to me, and I would tell this story, never, ever, ever thinking like Sasquatch or anything. And then I went hunting with a friend of mine who's a Native American. He's from he's a card carrying Native American. He's from the Lumbee tribe, which. Again, oh, yeah. ties into you guys because mm-hmm. you had that series with the Lost Colony. That's right. right. Which they're the Lumbee tribe that are down. There. He's in that tribe. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he has a card. He's a card carrying member. And he started talking to me once about like Sasquatch. And I, I said, yeah, I don't really believe. I mean, I believe they could be out there. But I don't think they're everywhere out there. And he said, I want you to listen to this Sasquatch Chronicles. Well, I started listening to that. <laughs> and you, it doesn't take long before that same, my same story happens time and time again. I said, "Oh my gosh! It was probably—I don't know if it was a Bigfoot. I don't know what was following me. I never saw it, but I know that that same story that I just told happens many times in like that Sasquatch Chronicles." And another thing, so I, of course, got all the books and all the stuff I could get on on this kind of phenomenon. And one of the things I got was a missing four one one book by Pallades, and one of the kids that goes missing in Pennsylvania, in Central PA he basically went missing from where my car was parked. Wow. I mean, that was pretty strange too, you know? So, but it, it was in the early 1900s that he went missing, like 1914. Or so. Oh yeah. Okay. So, wow. right? so that's kind of the first story. Okay. That happened. And I never really thought for years and years and years until almost recently that I think relive that story. I always told it. I never forgot it. Now I think that something, I don't know, weird followed me out. Again, didn't see it. So now Fast forward to four years ago, I have watched or listened to Sasquatch Chronicles. I have researched a lot of stuff because I started believing what what had happened earlier before. So I'm going into this second situation with a little bit more knowledge of the paranormal. Okay. So we had hunted, we were hunting in this, in central PA, that's just really like a few miles, like five, six miles away from where this first thing happened. It was very hot this week, and we were not hearing any birds gobble whatsoever. So we thought, well, maybe they're down in deep ravines. Like we had never really hunted down there. Maybe that's where they are during hot times. Why don't we find the deepest ravine we can and go down? So we found on you know Google Maps the deepest ravine that's very close to us. It was right in central PA. This ravine is not quite a mile, but it's very close to a mile straight down. When I say straight down, it's you have to go down on your back and your backside. You unload your gun and just basically slide down and you're going down, down. And I, before we started, I said to my buddy, are we really going to do this? And he just sat down and slid down the first 20 yards and, and we started going down. We weren't very far in. We were maybe a quarter of the way in and down below us and to, maybe to our left, we heard this whining sound. And it was going on and on. Finally, I, I turned to my friend, my hunting buddy, and I said, What's that? Like, what is that sound? And he looked at me and he said, like, with a question, because it wasn't real clear what it was. He said, Chainsaw? With like a question in his voice. And as soon as he said the word chainsaw, we heard crack, 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 boom, boom, boom. It was almost on cue. He said, Chainsaw, tree fell. Then we heard, The wine again. But this time, the first time the wine had gone on for a minute more, maybe. The second time, right after the first tree fell, the second time we just heard the wine was like very, very short, like maybe five seconds, and then crack, 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 boom. And then whine, crack, 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 boom. Then so we heard it it two more times, you know. So but after the first time, only very short whines before we heard the tree fall. And we had this conversation. Why would somebody, if you saw this hill, and i can send you like a google's map topography map of how steep this hill is and it's just a straight down why would somebody be cutting trees on the side of this hill we were thinking where how are they getting these this wood out you know just it, it seems impossible how are you
3: guys going to get out of the ravine if it was well it was... <laughs> that
5: comes up at the end of this story. okay all right we eventually had to get out of the ravine so we were again if you're hunting turkeys and you're not yeah. hearing turkeys You'll do just about anything to <laughs> to try to figure out what you're doing wrong, but sometimes right. it's nothing. They're just not gobbling,
7: you know. Whatever.
5: Yeah. <laughs> so, or sometimes it's everything. Who knows? We didn't we didn't hear a bird that week. So anyway, we we keep going down, and we are hearing from time to time we're hearing this whiny chainsaw. We get down to the very bottom, and if you can think about it, like if the hill is like the the Grand Canyon, then the Colorado River, we there was a creek down there. Was this a creek? But just to give you in your mind's eye, we went down the Grand Canyon, and hit the Colorado, and we made a right hand turn because the whining sound was on our left. We said, well, we're not going to go hunting turkeys towards somebody cutting wood over there. So we went to the right. We were walking, we probably walked a quarter mile or so down along this creek, and it was flat. It wasn't, there wasn't, it was level down there. It wasn't like the hill, the hill was on our right. We were paralleling the hill. We came across these trees that were as big around as a man's thigh. They were snapped. They weren't cut with any chainsaw. They were snapped at about waist high. And they were in a pin straight line. I'm going to say that there were they were about 20, maybe 20 yards apart, 20, 30 yards apart. And they were in a pin straight line walking on the flat area and then to where they the hill started, you could see two or three of them. And then they sort of disappeared into the, the hill, you know, because it was so thick. You couldn't see them anymore. But they were 30 yards apart. And and I'm looking at them thinking, what could have done that? And I never said a word, but my buddy stopped and he said, look at those trees. That's the weirdest thing I ever saw. And I said, what do you think did that? And I said, I don't know, maybe, maybe a tornado. And he said, yeah, but why? The weird thing about these trees, right, so that there were no other trees around them that were knocked over. It was just these trees. They weren't knocked over. They were snapped. And there was no top anywhere around. You couldn't see a top, like, bent over. It was just a, a column of trees snapped and then no top. And in a pin straight line walking up the hill, and maybe you could see 10, 10 of them snap like that. I don't think any living animal could, could do that, not even an elephant. So what you're saying is something took
3: the the top, most of the top half of the tree with all the branches and just walked
5: off with it or just disappeared it. So that's a guess. I yeah. mean, I have no clue. We sat there and looked at this and said, he said, maybe it's wind shear. And I said, well, what is wind shear? Like, I have no yeah. clue what wind shear is. And he <laughs> says, I think that's when it comes in like a saw almost, whereas a tornado comes down. Right. I said, well, maybe, but why didn't it cut off any other trees, like right. in between these trees? So I'll even tell you, so later on in the story, I call up the state and I tell them everything that happened. And he had an idea about these trees that comes later. Unfortunately, the worst thing about the whole day is I didn't take any pictures of these trees. Mm-hmm. And I wish I did, because it to me, this those trees were almost the strangest thing that we saw. I mean, mm-hmm. you saw that those nests. But if you pick the net or put the nest and the trees, it's like something is strange in these woods. Right. So Mm. it was about 11 o'clock. You're allowed to hunt till noon in Pennsylvania. And my friend said, let's start hunting up the hill now so that when noon comes, Mm -hmm. we won't be all the way down here and have to go up the hill at noon. So that's what we did. And so so how we got up the hill with one foot, we would dig a step and then have to step on a 45 and step and dig a step here so we weren't really hunting actually we were just digging steps (laughs) on a 45 and then zigzagging on 45s to get up this hill and what we would do is we'd be exhausted almost instantly we would go to the nearest tree that we could find and sort of rest on the high side of the tree and then zigzag up to the nearest tree sometimes it was in the same direction sometimes it was Mm -hmm. this way but that's how we were doing it about every 20 yards we would rest He and I were walking parallel like this Mm -hmm. and he was above me, but behind me, I was in front of him going up the hill and he was behind me. And we were, I'm going to say we were about halfway up the hill and I see above me. Cause again, it's like we're on a wall. So you can't see that far above you or below you. You'd have to be there Mm -hmm. to understand, but I'm looking above me and I see what looks like on a, like a boulder. I see what looks like an opening. And I think in my mind, that that looks like it could be a cave there, a cave mouth, right? Mm -hmm. But I didn't say anything because I was was completely exhausted. I couldn't walk over to this whatever. I didn't want to explore it. I was was just too exhausted. I knew he was also exhausted. It was very warm that day, by the way. It was like at that point, 80, maybe 85 degrees. And we had dressed for chilly weather in the morning in the mountains. So we were probably overdressed. So we were exhausted. We had no water (laughs) like dummies. He now, again, is, a, is above me, but behind me. And when he gets to the, that mouth of that cave, now he's actually standing in front of it because he was above me. And he says, out now, he says, there's a cave here. And I said, is it big enough for a man to walk in? And he said, yes. And I said, do you want to go in? And he said, no. <laughs> and because we, the place that we were hunting is a place, it's off of a rattlesnake pike. And he said, maybe rattlesnakes in here are so warm today. I said, yeah, you know, that's a good that's a good point. Like, we shouldn't go in. So we just kept walking. And then we zigzagged this way. We were about 40 or so yards. We weren't very far from the mouth of this cave. And we had zigzagged above it. And right at the mouth of the cave, I mean, right at the mouth of the cave, we hear crack, 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 boom. And it shook the ground. We didn't see a tree fall, but we heard and felt a tree fall, which seemed like 40 yards away from us. It was very strange. I turned to my friend and I said, that ever happened to you before? And at this point, I was very on high alert for like the paranormal was happening to us. I don't think he was. And as a matter of fact, I, I know pretty much he wasn't. We weren't talking about any of this. Like I just said to him, did that ever happen to
2: you before? And he said, no. This, you know, that's a quote from Ghostbusters, right? This kind of thing ever happened to you? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <I'm totally laughs> got it, I don't know. <laughs> No,
5: no. And he's just like, okay, okay. We were so far down this. We were probably at that point, we were a half a mile. We had a half a mile to go. We were both exhausted. I remember my, he, he turned to me and he goes, whose stupid idea was this? <laughs> it, was my, it had been mine. Right. <laughs> and so we kept going and we were maybe another quarter of the way up. So another, like a quarter mile higher than when that happened. And all of a sudden he said, I'm getting dizzy. He said, I feel like my heart's fluttering. And he said, "I'm I'm getting dizzy. I I need to sit down." And I looked at him, and his eyes were fluttering. And I said, "Sit down now," because all I was thinking is, "I'm gonna have, now I'm gonna have to carry him out, right?" And he's a thin guy. He's in much better shape than I am. But he he immediately sat down with his back to a tree, and in a second or two, his eyes were shut, and he looked like he was asleep. And so I looked at my watch, and it was quarter of twelve, and I still had fifteen minutes to hunt. And I walked above him. And as I walked above him, I I heard crack crack. But t- in my mind, I thought at first I thought, well, that's a woodpecker. That's a weird woodpecker. It was below me, so if he if he was directly below me, this thing was below me and to my right. If I'm looking up the hill, it was kind of below me and to my right. And I hear crack crack, and it's coming up the hill. The sound is coming up the hill in parallel. And then I hear crack crack. I heard a third time. So this sequence happens about six times. And each time, the noise is coming higher up the hill until it's directly parallel to me. And it's about, the noise is about 40 yards away. And I'm thinking, I should see this bird. I'm thinking it's a weird woodpecker is what I'm thinking. I know I've heard many times people hear the sound of, I don't know like they call it, like knocks. I think that's what it was. At the time, I just never had heard it before. So I thought it was like maybe a woodpecker, but it wasn't. And so it it got parallel to me, and it didn't do it anymore. So it did it like maybe six times coming up until it was parallel to me. And so I said, hey, I I had my shotgun in my hand. I wasn't afraid. I was never really afraid. I I had a buddy with me. It makes a big difference when somebody's with you. I said, I only have 15 minutes to go. I'm going to see if I can call a hen or a gobbler in. So I took out my hen call. I have a diaphragm mouth call, and I yelled. I went, yelp, 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 yelp. And if I don't know if any of you hunt, but when you do a, a yelp turkey call, it's it's very soft. It's not anything that could ever throw an echo back. So I went, yelp, 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 yelp. And over where the last knock came from, 40 yards over, I right hear, and I said, what well, sounds like that bird mimicked me, right? So I waited, you know, five minutes, I guess it was, because I only had 15 minutes. So I probably waited five minutes. And I went, yelp, 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 yelp. And I hear, and I said, that's something is mimicking me. So now I said, okay, I'm going to wait like two minutes and 45 seconds. I'm going to put a time on it and I'm going to call at two minutes and 45 seconds. So I, I wait the two minutes and 45 seconds. And I say, this time I do a different cadence. I say, yelp, 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 yelp. And it goes, I said, okay, something's over there mimicking me for sure. hundred percent. And then like 15 minutes was over. It was the end of the hunt. It was 12 o'clock. And my buddy opens his eyes and he says, I'm, I'm okay to, to get up and walk down. So we go the rest of the way. And at, towards the top of this ravine that we were in, we started hitting shelves. So it would be like, you would go up and then you'd hit a sh- like a little shelf that was like maybe 20, 30 yards of level. And then you'd have to go up again. And maybe we hit that like four or five times. But on like maybe the second shelf that we hit, we saw this nest, which you guys, I sent you the picture of. It was about probably 50 or 60 yards to our left. I said, Finn, look at that nest over here. So let's go look at it. He says, I'm not going over there. I'm not going over there. (laughs) So I walk over there. The closer I get to this thing, I can't, all I can say is everything in my body said, don't go near this thing. I could not bring myself to, there was an opening to the front. And it leaned down like this. I could not bring myself to go in and and look in that opening. I couldn't do it. It was some kind of instinct or visceral. I just could not go bring myself to look in this thing. Like a buddy of mine, a different friend, he said to me, Why wouldn't you go look in it? And I said, Think of it like this. So at this point, this thing had knocked this tree down very close to us. It had made knocking sounds it had mimicked me so i knew that i had been pretty close to this thing whatever it was a couple times during this day and i said think in your mind if you think dracula is in the woods and then you come across a coffin are you opening that thing up
0: <laughs> and that's the right. way about
5: how i felt at this point i just wanted to kind of get out of the woods which we did with, with no issues we got we got out of the woods and the story is about almost over i called up the state game land who sent me to The area where the state parks is like two different law enforcement people Mm -hmm. called them both up and they said that the chainsaws were probably people like that were doing it for the state. And I said, why would they be doing it on the hill, this really steep hill? And he said, well, sometimes they have to cut trails through there. I said, well, how about the nest? I said, do you want to see pictures of it? No, I don't want to see. It was some crazy man living in there. Or he said it was it was probably a hunter. I said, like, this thing was on the steep hill, like a quarter mile down. There's I hunt. There's no way I would go to all that trouble to build this nest to hunt out of. I would just use a tree stand. There's just no way. Now, maybe if I was running from the law, there's a chance that I would build something like that to use as a dwelling. So, okay, I, I kind of had to give him that. I don't know what built this thing. I know it looks pretty strange. I know that if I was going to build something, I don't think it would look as helter-skelter as as that Mm -hmm. nest looks. Mm -hmm. The trees that were snapped. He said there's a worm that eats the bark of a tree and they can snap off. And then the worms will walk down the tree and then get on the next tree. So it it happens in a straight line. Mm. I said, well, that's all good, but there were no tops to the trees there. Right. And he said the only thing that he was very interested in was these trees snapped. That's kind of weird. And I said, well, how about the the mimic? How about the thing mimicking me? He said, I, I have no idea what that was. Mm. He was trying to give me reasons. And at the end of it, he said, listen, it sounds like you want me to say and you might have <laughs> had like a Bigfoot encounter. And I'm not saying that. I don't believe them. I think it's crazy. It's, it's just, they're not out there. So that's what happened there. Now, the one last strange thing in this story was that one week later to the day, So this happened like on a Thursday or something. One week later, I was fishing in downstate Delaware, Marshy Hope Creek with a different friend. I had not told him anything had happened. I had not spoken about any of this. And we're fishing along this creek. In front of us, like 80 yards in front of us, this gigantic oak tree about three quarters of the way up, this great big limb just goes snap, 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 snap. And then it goes all the way down to the the regular base of the tree. What I don't know what you call it, the like the regular the main mm-hmm. of the tree. It snaps all the way down. Then it breaks off, and it just tumbles down to the ground. It was a gigantic limb. And my buddy, he looks at this. We both watched it as it actually broke off of the tree and then came all the way down. And he said that was weird. And then he sort of just put his head down. We were in a canoe, and he just thought about it for a while. And it took him about a minute. He goes, you know why that was weird? And I said, why? And he said, because that was a completely healthy branch. It had green leaves all over. It was completely healthy. And it just broke off and just slowly tumbled to the ground, 80 yards in front of us. And I immediately thought, okay, somehow these things can communicate to each other. That's (laughs) what I thought. Now maybe everything that happened in the story was just, you know, a tree fell because trees fall all the time in the woods. And I don't know about the, the nest and the mimicking, but you know what, like there are natural things happen in the woods. And maybe it just so happened that the sequence of weird things happened to me. But I don't think so. I like my gut feeling says it, it, it was something very strange in the woods that day.
3: There's no tops to the trees. You know, like I said, if it's a beetle, if it's a worm, if it's the wind, whatever, something's not going to carry away all the treetops, especially in a straight line. With no other trees on either side being affected, you would think. Okay, I can understand certain parts of it. And yeah, so the state wildlife guy, it it sounds like, well, I got explanations up to a point and it's going to have to stop there. But I mean, the shelter, we'll have this posted on the webpage for this episode. And it does look messy like an animals, right?
5: That's what I would say.
3: Yeah. It's not easy to get to and not easy to get out of. How tall was it
2: at the apex?
5: taller than me i'm gonna say like maybe eight ten feet
2: really something like that yeah. okay
5: it was very long
2: mm-hmm.
5: at that point i just ha- had enough of being in those woods i just wanted yeah. to get away from it
2: i found rattlesnake pike were you somewhere outside of state college then for this or yeah over there yeah, yeah. above
5: state college i can tell you if you're looking rattlesnake pike i don't really care anybody goes there they move. yeah i hope they go there and see see what I, see. <laughs> I i can't i don't think i'll ever walk back down there again because yeah it was so taxing like and even four years ago like i actually had covid pretty bad so i was in oh fields. okay i don't think my lungs could go down there anymore you know right, crisis, i don't right. think so if you go off of rattlesnake pike on governor's ridge road okay you'll see governor's ridge on the right of governor's ridge look how steep that ravine is. That's the ravine we went down.
2: Okay.
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
7: Oh, 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 O'Reilly.
0: You need parts? O'Reilly
3: Auto Parts has parts.
1: Hi, I'm Robin, and when I'm not running from the Jersey Devil, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get
2: back to the show.
3: Here's what's interesting is that I would have expected maybe a wildlife explanation for this haphazard, scruffy-looking shelter. Like, oh, well, you know, whatever the game is in the area, there could be, you know, fisher cats, whatever, whatever the the explanation is. Yeah, they'll do that. Or it's a, it's a den type thing. Even maybe the guy could set a, could say bears, but the fact that of what it is, where it is, and that it's not a good place for a human, right? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a human to be just hiding out there When there are far more easier places, especially if you're just unhoused, you know, if you're just kind of living in the woods like that, it would be more uniform, but he hadn't, he had no wildlife explanation, right?
5: Well, no, and he, he never saw the nest. He didn't want, he said Right, right, right. But one thing I can tell you, so I know for sure, just being around hunters and just being around people, Mm -hmm. if there's a human being in the area using an area, there is refuse. Yeah, right. I was about to say. yeah. There's a can of something. There yep. is a paper somewhere, you know, a wrapper of some kind. There was nothing there. No, nothing at all.
3: No, I was about to say, too, is that I've seen places where you could say people just got to hold up for a while. Uh, and usually it's not real deep in the woods, but you could say like, oh, you know, there's like a fire ring. There is some trace there. And again, it would just, at the very least, garbage. You know, just a few pieces, like you yeah. said, wrappers or this and that. And there's nothing like that around there. It was curious, though, that when you first said it, that the guy didn't even want to look at the pictures.
5: He truly, in his heart, thought I was wasting his time. Right. He basically was saying, <laughs> you want me to say that there's Sasquatch, and I am I just am not going to do that because there aren't.
6: Why would he... I mean, unless other people, unless this was the 20th time he'd heard this story, why does he immediately just go, I'm not looking at your pictures. I'm not going to tell you it's Bigfoot.
5: Yeah, I don't know. To me, I was I was kind of excited to tell him. I thought that people would be excited about this. And then I basically sent this to other Sasquatch podcasts and, and got nothing. I tried to get a hold of the BFRO. I got nothing. Yeah. I said, Well, maybe they just get so many of these stories thrown at them that they just can't follow up on everything. Is what I thought, and and maybe this one because I didn't see anything, right? I didn't physically see any animal, so I thought maybe maybe that's what it was. Maybe this, unless I had physical proof, then nobody really wants to see anything or follow up on it.
3: Well, I would say generally they want to collect any kind of data or just make a report, like I said, even if you didn't see anything, because most people don't see something, they'll hear something, they'll see evidence, like I said, of uh, something unusual with the tree, as we always say, uh, I, I believe it was a uh, survivor man, he said, you know, there's a half, a top of a tree stuck straight into the ground, like that doesn't happen naturally. Right. And this, exactly. they, they, they would just want to collect this, but it didn't seem, uh, and maybe they are getting too many reports, but...
6: You know, I mean, again, just all the normal stuff, like are, are there other pictures that are like this? Uh, has anyone ever photographed something that looks like this out in the woods? I don't know. I perhaps you haven't investigated it, But the reticence of people whose job it seems to be to listen or investigate, and the fact that you reached out to these organizations and they did nothing for you, and this forest ranger, acting as if you're wasting his time. What else is he going to do? What was, <laughs> what was the demand on his time? That I day? just
7: think
5: he's the guy that has all these people saying that they heard and saw things.
6: Right. Right. But isn't that the point though? It's like when 20 people say something, shouldn't you listen more rather yeah. than I'm not going to listen to the hundredth person telling me that they saw this thing in this mm-hmm. area. No, that's when you do listen. Why? Yes. What is this resistance? It drives me nuts. But Rich and
3: Tom, listen to this. It, Tom, having read the Missing Four One One book, and if you watch any of these kind of documentaries and and uh, clips on YouTube, there does seem to be. It's either at, at the very least, it's a hesitancy to want to pay attention to this or put this in kind of a database or or draw any conclusions. Certainly, uh, you said Politus was told like, yeah, well. For us to make a database with just missing people, that's going to cost $14 million, and we don't have the budget, we're not going to do it. If you want to do it, have have at it. And then on the other hand, you have – what I would say, like I said, I I have a friend who is a a fire captain, and so he knows a little bit about state government reporting – and he says there's just no category, you know. Now it's now of course it's all online, right? Because that's an easy way to to filter and funnel and, and keep a database. And he says there's no pull down category for Sasquatch. You know, there's no. Yeah. I don't want to take a report because I don't want to write anything, anything special. I don't have time to deal with this, and that's not a category. Like my friend, I, I've said this before. The category is uh, bear walking upright. That's he said. That's about yeah. as close as you're gonna get. However, yeah, Tom, you you noticed it does seem like there is, I would guess that Politius is actually trying to intimate that maybe there is some kind of effort, concerted effort amongst state officials, government officials to not investigate this at all. Or that maybe they do know something going on or they just don't care because it's but more
6: more so that's it seems like to him like something's going on here. So you you remember, I mean, we've talked about it, the show The Night Stalker, Colshack. Yes, Night of Stalker, course, right. right. Tom, do you, do you know that show? Oh my
5: gosh, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay.
6: So so the joke on that show, of course, anyone who watches it and knows anything about it is like, all right, Kolchak goes to Vincenzo once, talks about a vampire. Vincenzo says, Shut up. Then he comes back and he's talking about a zombie. By the time he gets to werewolf, don't you start to listen to Shack By the time he's talking about a headless motorcyclist, don't you just stop and go, okay, I know I just told you to shut up the first 11 times. Right. Maybe we sit down now and find out what your problem is. <laughs> or yeah. we look into it. That's I, it's right. so crazy. Yes, But Rich, the city
3: council is having an announcement luncheon that he has to cover. It's very important. And that's their attitude, though. It's like, don't don't mess around with this stuff. We can't, there's no way to track or calculate it. My thing is that if you do believe in Paulides' work and others, is that when you do connect the dots, there is a disturbing pattern
6: that they don't want to have to address. And ultimately, they're responsible for our safety. I mean, I don't know, legal liability, maybe that's it. But if David Paulides went out and did the research, something tells me it didn't cost him $14 million. (laughs)
3: No, they just don't right. want to do it. That's the point. Yeah.
6: so now I go back to my thing about Tom, you know, you're a hunter, you're you're out in the woods. you have a sense of what you expect to see, what feels normal, what doesn't feel normal. the the tops of the trees didn't feel normal. You'd never seen that before, right? Yeah,
5: without even speaking to each other, we both were looking at these trees and saying, "How could this possibly have happened? and then i I forgot to tell you this. A week after, you know, this happened, my friend and I spoke about it. We hadn't spoken, you know, we went back home and we hadn't really spoken about it. You know, I called him, I said, hey, we got to talk about this whole thing that happened, right? And so I went through what I thought happened from start to finish, What what I, what I just spoke. And then he said, I don't remember having this conversation about the trees snapping. I don't remember trees being, mm. he had started the conversation. He remembered everything. He remembered the tree falling. He didn't remember the trees being snapped, but he started the whole conversation. He was the one that he sort of, three quarters of the way up the hill, he sort of, he lost almost consciousness. Like he he sort of had to shut his eyes and sit down. Some of his memory of the day, he didn't have. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, it was very strange. It was very strange.
3: Did you listen to our first Devil's Den episode with Terry Lovelace?
5: I don't know. Okay, that, well, that remind me, like this was like all the different things that if it mentions like the devil or <laughs> evil or not too far from this area, there is a place called Devil's Elbow.
3: Well, there you go. There's nothing more devilish than an elbow, but
5: yeah, yeah.
6: <laughs> you could be anywhere in America. And within 10 miles, there's the yeah, devil. Exactly. Something. Right, right, yeah. right.
3: Because again, we take a, a story from someone we trust and we we say like, okay, what are all the elements here? Again, trying to draw the, uh, connect the dots and look at the patterns. And well, first of all, let me ask you this. What, what do you think it was? Do you think it was a large animal? Let's say, let's start there. Just a, maybe a bear.
5: I think it was, it was a physical animal. Mm-hmm. I think it was following us. I think that it was either really knocking down trees or it could mimic the sound of trees getting knocked down and maybe stamp on the ground because we actually felt the ground shake
7: mm-hmm. at the
5: one where it was in front of the cave. We didn't see a tree fall, so it's not clear to me that a tree actually fell. Right. It's clear to me that we heard a tree fall and we felt a tree fall. Yeah. So, another thing, I do have a like little stories. Like so that was during spring, like the following fall or maybe even two falls later. It was pre-COVID, so it had to be the following fall it had to be the next fall this same guy his name's vent he and two other guys were hunting we were hunting grouse vent was say point zero, fifty 50 yards in the woods was the the other guy then another 50 yards was me then another fifty yards further was my brother-in-law so we were spread out like 150 yards my brother-in-law starts wandering too far to the right and he kind of gets lost he starts yelling because we're every now and then we're yelling to each other just to make sure we know where each other is. And he's getting further and further away. And I was like, oh, brother, he's getting lost. So I said, we need need to go get him. We start walking to get him. And as we start walking towards him, my brother-in-law, I hear a rifle go off. Pow! And it was not a big deal because we were grass hunting the first week of November. And I know that Deer season in Pennsylvania starts the first Monday after Thanksgiving. So uh, somebody in my mind, had thought somebody's out here sighting in their rifle. I was not worried in the slightest. So we go and get my, my brother-in-law, find them, bring them out, and we pair off. And I, and Vince, the guy who was down in the ravine with me comes over to me. And the other two are kind of walking shoulder to shoulder, 10, 15 yards away. They're not part of our conversation is what I'm trying to say. And Vint says, did you hear that rifle go off? And I said, yeah, I think it was probably somebody sighting his gun in. He goes, it wasn't a rifle. It was a tree snapping because it was on the other side of me. And I actually heard the crack, 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 boom. I actually heard the tree fall, but it was like a more green, supple tree that whatever it was that snapped it, it sounded like a rifle to me. I was 100 yards away from it. And it sounded like a rifle going off. I was actually probably more than 100 yards because Vint was 100 yards away from it from me. So this was on the other side of him. So that's, that's a weird thing too. It was a sound of a tree snapping. I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to tell you the two, two very short other stories. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Same year, grouse hunting, my brother-in-law and I were on the road. The thing followed me out and this guy, maybe college age guy, he was going to go down this road. And I said, better watch out. There's like, Sasquatch down that road, right? And I was just joking with him. And he goes, why do you say that? And I said, well, I told him a very short synopsis of the story. And he said, okay, you're not going to believe this. But he said, last fall, I was putting out a game camp on this side of this mountain. So when I walked down that hill, down that road, there's another road parallel and then a valley in between. He was on this side. He said, I was putting in a game camp. It was completely hidden. There's like, You couldn't see that game cam. No, I don't think any human could. As I was putting this in, I heard a scream from the other side of this mountain. He said, I've never heard whatever it was that screamed. I've never heard anything so loud. And I, he said, I never heard it in the woods. I've been hunting my whole life. He was only college age, but he's he said, I've been hunting my whole life. I've never heard anything. So it's all in the same area. And he said, the next week we checked his game cam, it had been pulled off the tree. I said, well, how do you know, guys, somebody, some hunter didn't do it. He said, no, no, no hunter found this thing. I promise you, no hunter found it. And he said, I filmed bear before. They snuff around the the game cam and usually they, they might bite at it. But this was pulled off of the tree. He said, I've never thought anything of it. like." This is the first I'm ever putting two and two together. Mm. So that was a little data point. It was the same area. He had a weird experience. The other weird experience I didn't really have, but I came across and put two and two together. So I actually have a video of this, which is also in the exact same area. It's, it's all in the same area. I was walking in the woods. I was turkey hunting and I came across a blind. So it was like a, a camouflage blind that two trees had fallen on. So I, I was there on Monday. Somebody was hunting out of that blind on Monday, the first Monday of the season, because I was very close to him and he was annoyed that I was close to him. So I walked the other way. I know somebody was in that blind on Monday. But something was weird about that blind because the, the noise that was coming back at me, was a, it was like a crow sound, but it didn't sound like, it sounded like somebody doing a crow call with his mouth. With, which typically turkey hunters do with a crow call. I have a crow call. So it disturbed me so much. And so much of this stuff has happened to me. I drove back up three and a half hours by myself, walked a half mile in to this area where this crow call had come to me. Mm-hmm. And this is what I found. I found this blind, a brand new blind, brand new from that season blind with a brand new like lawn chair. So the guy was sitting inside the blind with a lawn chair, but the lawn chair was outside of the blind. Two trees had been knocked down on top of the blind. In the video, you'll say, basically, this is what I say. I say, I just came across this blind in the woods and it looks pretty strange. And here's why I say, this one tree, it has fallen across this blind. But here's the strange thing. Look where the tree was snapped from. And I go about halfway up, about 10 feet up, There's the tree was snapped not from the base but from ten feet up and it fell right on top of this blind, which the guy had been hunting from on Monday or or maybe because this Mm -hmm. this weird noise had come back to me, which made me drive back up. Now on the other side, I have a video of me just looking at this odd on the other side of the blind. The other side of the blind, there's a tree that's about this big around. That's also snapped about shoulder high on me, but it wasn't broken all the way to fall on the blind, but it's, it's on top of the blind. Nobody in their right mind would put a blind underneath a tree that was already snapped and leaning like this. Right. So this had all happened. This had all happened since the person who put this blind in, which was the beginning of the season was Saturday. I was there on Monday and I was there on the following Saturday and i checked the area the following saturday and i can i'll send this video to you i it's very strange i don't want to seem like see, see now i'm hypersensitive to <laughs> right. all this stuff it, which is true i i am hypersensitive to it
3: well the the odd thing with the with the 45 degree grade there what i was getting about with devil's den is the fact that there's a now i know you're both exhausted but the the sudden sleepiness yeah and maybe maybe that's just dehydration but also not remembering the same thing, that was pretty significant. Yeah, not,
5: that's that's specifically odd. when when he brought it up, he mm-hmm. started the conversation. All the data points were hit in this story, like infrasound, mm-hmm. is that was called. EMP. I don't oh. know infrasound. Infrasound. infrasound yeah. yeah. So I hear people talk about getting kind of woozy or, or dizzy, and then talking about that. Well, he did get woozy and dizzy, right? And like you said, we, we were very hot. We were. Very dehydrated, and we had a, come a long way. Right. So maybe it was just him being dizzy, but mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't.
3: Yeah, it's just another odd element of the story. But you, but you feel overall that these things are not well. I guess uh, <laughs> the person that I think called the story together just made a note saying, like, well, you may not believe you, Tom, may not believe that it's actually quote unquote a Bigfoot, but it might be some other kind of of cryptid beast or something, something that I'm not sure if we got that right. If, did you feel it was like like authentic OG original Bigfoot type activity or just, just in your gut
5: feeling, did you smell anything during any of this? No, we did not smell anything either on this. I sometimes feel that it was a Bigfoot and sometimes I feel it was, it was some demon that i like, I I waffle between when I was going by that mouth of that cave, I just felt right then and there that something was not right about that cave. I I Mm. kind of feel like whatever it was, was in that cave. Mm -hmm. After we were all done, especially when the tree fell, then I said something was in that cave that came out and I feel like it didn't like us being Mm. there. And that's why that tree fell. But then we, when we started to walk away, then it came up the hill knocking, making knocking sounds, which was in my mind, not quite as aggressive as a tree being knocked down. And then it actually almost talked to me. So it was like, oh, okay, I'm not as mad now as I was before. And I'm going to mimic you. I see you guys are leaving. So I'm not mad anymore. That's what I felt right then and there.
3: (laughs) You know, the echoing of the, uh, the turkey call is interesting. How would you describe the mimicking? Was it close to a call or was it just another weird sound? It was just making the same cadence.
5: It sounded almost like sweep, like sweep, yeah. sweep, sweep, sweep. That's what it sounded like to me. Uh, but it was the same cadence and the, and the same number of right calls.
3: Yeah, something something was mimicking you. We just don't know
2: what.
5: <laughs> yeah, it was close enough where I should have seen it in my right. in my mind.
2: Right. That was my next question. Do you think it was close enough that you should have seen it? So, do you think it was naturally camouflaged, or do you think that it was camouflaged in some more sophisticated way? I don't know. I'm baffled by it. I can't recall. I remember kind of thinking there's no big trees
5: over there for anything to hide behind. So I Mm -hmm. should be able to see it is, is what I thought. And I looked hard over there and it was day, it was noon. So it wasn't like dusk or dark. I should have been able to see whatever it was.
6: When you talk to your friends, people who are not with you, but other people who are hunters, I assume they're people at work, people around. You've told the story around campfires. Yeah. Does anyone, A, does it spark anyone to say, yes, exactly, I saw that exact same thing, yes, or is everyone like, that's totally weird?
5: No, so there's a third thing. They Every hunter I've talked to, they say that nothing, like I've been in the woods hundreds of hours and, and I've not had anything happen to me but they know who i am and they know that i don't make things up if i say this happened it happened i don't think they think i'm i'm weird <laughs> for the most part the hunters don't because they right, know right, right. i tell them exactly what happened and what was going through my mind and and they put themselves right they said the one guy he, he said boy i just wish that happened to me and i said you maybe if you're with somebody yes but that when mm-hmm. that thing was following me by myself that was very nerve wracking. It was no one wants that to happen to them at night. No, right. I'm sorry. No, no, so.
6: no. Well, that's interesting because you know you could tell me probably some very prosaic details of a hunting trip, and to me it would sound very exotic and strange, and it would be the first time I'd I'd ever be hearing about it because I've never gone hunting. It's not part of my experience. What you're saying is you're talking to other people who have gone hunting. Many, many times, hundreds of hours, like you said, just like you, and even to them, this is strange. Now, for me, that's very valuable information. That's saying that it's not just a commonly explainable, easily explainable phenomenon. It is truly strange. Yeah. And should sort of be of interest, I would imagine.
5: Yeah. I agree. There was a college professor. He's either in Pittsburgh or Harrisburg. I want to say Pittsburgh, who I saw on the Internet that he would teach about this in some of his classes. And I sent him a note telling him about this experience. And he wanted to get he contacted me and said, I'd like to hear about especially this. Your buddy who became dizzy and had to sit down and everything That, that was interesting to him. And I said, well, it was very hot and it was, we were dehydrated. So, it, you know, I don't want to make it sound like right. it was in infrasound, but it could have been, how do I know it wasn't? Yeah. But as soon as I said that, then, then he never contacted me again. So people do get interested, but maybe if everything, if they don't check off all the boxes in their heads, then they don't get back to you. Right. I don't know. The people who should be looking into it more seem, seem not to sometimes.
6: And it's kind of funny because it's not like a ghost. It's not like a UFO. The trees are there. They were there the day you saw them. They'd be there the next day if someone came back with a ladder and a camera and some equipment and decided to actually look at the the area at which it had been broken, photograph yeah. it, examine it. Anyone can look at this stuff. It's physical. Yeah. It exists. Why not check it out and figure it out? Those trees probably
5: are still there, I would think. I mean, that was only four, four years ago with the question
3: of infrasound generally there has to be wind moving through something and sometimes i've read it can happen with telephone lines or telephone poles you know not on a still day right you you need wind coming through trees uh, a lot of people believe that had something to do with the otlaw pass i i personally don't because there aren't any trees around there and sometimes it can happen coming down slopes but it's a very gentle slope so i don't see that being a very good explanation for at least the outlaw. But I will tell you now, I can't remember where I read this. Scott may clue into this because we read a lot of, we so many books on this and there's so many fun anecdotes, but that's another interesting aspect. When you say it was almost like it was invisible or could not be seen and you should have been able to see it, whatever it was, especially an animal because yes, they're hidden and a lot of them are camouflaged, but I've been in the woods and yeah, sometimes if you're, if you're quiet, you will see, things that are pretty well camouflaged like owls and hawks yeah. in the trees or porcupine, different animals, raccoons in, in the woods. One of my favorite sayings is that in the woods, there's always a sound. In the city, there's always a reflection. So in the woods, you can hear them because they're rustling around doing their thing. But the story that I heard either comes from, I believe, uh, one of Terry Lovelace's books. And maybe this, I can't remember if it's the second one with a bunch of anecdotes that people have written in. Or it might be David Weatherly's Strange Intruders. But what the story is, and you'll appreciate this, Tom, is that it comes from a hunter, and I can't remember what I can't remember what they were hunting, but basically it was a guy that he'd been with, best I can remember the story. Like they'd been going out every season for 10, 20 years, you know, very, knew each other really well. And one season, it's the opening season, they have stands that I think that they put up as soon as they could, and they were going to hit it the next weekend. And they decided to, between friends, like, okay, you take the one that's like maybe maybe 500 yards away. So quite a ways away. You can't see the guy. And they were going to take the guy who's telling the story, took the stand that's closer, I think, probably to the car, the trailhead. And I believe, again, this is the part that I don't remember, but it was described as this one guy seeing something moving in the treetops. And, and again, this becomes almost a cliche, but if you've ever seen the movie Predator... Yeah. Okay. And he said that it's like some kind of image manipulation camouflage, where it's like something big is moving through the the treetops.
5: I get getting chills going up my back because I go in these woods all the time.
3: Well, yeah, that's yeah. how the story goes. Is that this guy was like, "What is that? That's that's just really weird because it's rustling. He can see the branches move, but it's like the tree pattern is not right. That that it yeah. is like you can still kind of see something there." And I think what happened, though, is that his buddy, I think, came running back from his stand. It's either that or he went out another weekend. But Basically, the guy was just, you know, sheet white. He's like, you do, do you do you see something weird? The guy goes like, we're out of here. That's it. I'm out of here. And they just ran out of there. And the guy would never go hunting again because he figures and he wouldn't talk about it is that he saw some, whatever that thing was, was way up a couple hundred yards up in his yeah. direction and finally made it back to this other guy, whatever was doing, scouting them out. But the point was that he should have been able to... He wasn't that far from the trees. He should have been able to see if this was a, a big animal or whatever it was mm. in the trees, but it just had that weird pattern like the image is being distorted a little bit, but it's still trees. It's just, yeah. And he said it that's what he described it as, as, as like the special effects from Predator. And we've heard that several other times before.
5: Yeah, very scary. I thought sometimes too, maybe they can throw sound like not just their voice but Mm -hmm. even like the sound of trees breaking i don't know i'm just throwing that out there like i should see this right in front of me like for instance that when the thing followed me out and i went back and i turned the flashlight on that was only 15 yards away from me Mm. with a flashlight i should have been able to see something yeah i went from leaf to leaf i mean branch to branch twig to twig for a a few minutes and nothing And then like looking back on it, maybe it was on the other side of the road, throwing the sounds to that side of the road. Yeah. I don't know if that's possible, but I don't know. Whatever it
3: is. Well, like a ventriloquist again, we're we're talking about this in another story where you have a lot of lung capacity. It's you're a big, a big animal. It's like if, I don't know if you've ever heard a bear growl in person up close, but it, it makes an impression on you. Now I've, I've heard one, but it was probably 50 yards away. And yeah, it's loud and booming, and I don't know may, if it is a Sasquatch that can make and mimic sounds and have fun with you. Whatever it is, maybe it can do something uh, that's loud and booming, and maybe mimics a tree snapping. Who knows? You know,
5: or a chainsaw. That's yeah. So I've heard chainsaws in the woods. After all that happened, I immediately recognized that that's a chainsaw.
7: Mm-hmm. Immediately,
5: that, that's a chainsaw. Immediately, and this thing went on and on, and I. I had to turn him and say what is that sound
7: mm. and
5: he actually just sort of cocked his head and said chainsaw you know and that's when it all started but neither one of us really re- i certainly didn't recognize it as a chainsaw until he said the word he kind of put it in my head and then we heard the tree fall the first tree fall and then and then we thought chainsaw you know mm-hmm. after that but it was a weird sounding t- chainsaw and i have heard i've heard chainsaw since and and I say, well, that's a chainsaw.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: I'm as far away. It's through the woods, and it sounds like a chainsaw. It's not a weird whiny noise. Maybe it's McCulloch and steel, or you know, <laughs> Steele, But who knows? Right. But uh,
3: yeah, wow. But you have no fear of going out in the woods and, and continuing hunting? And no,
5: yeah. no, I do. I do. I don't. I don't like going out by myself but I mm. do go out. I typically right. have a big thing, a bear spray. No, that's good. And usually I'm I have a shotgun with me. <laughs> I have to admit not not having been scared
3: personally. I do I want to look inside that shelter. But here's the thing, here's the thing. It's different when you're there. That's what you, people have to realize like, well, I would have done that. It's just a pile of sticks. It's like you didn't have that feeling.
5: Well, the thing was still in the woods. Whatever it was was still yeah. in the woods somewhere.
3: Exactly. And, and, yeah, I'm not you looking know. at his home.
5: Sorry, I'm not looking inside <laughs> his house. That, no, that's
3: not it. <laughs> Every animal's territorial, usually. And they will, uh, it's like getting near a badger's den. You know, they'll take on a yeah. bear. So you don't want to threaten somebody's <laughs> domicile or livelihood. You're going to get a bad reaction. But yeah, my curiosity would sit in here in the comfort of uh, you know, my recording space, sure. But like I said, that's always another interesting thing I ask people who experience unusual moments like this. Like, what did it feel like? Because that's what's something that Scott and I have not yet really felt. But there are variations of it. Like I said, I was trouncing around in the hills at Bannock where Sheriff Henry Plummer was was doing his, uh, his dastardly deeds and eventually got hung. And, you know, you don't think about it at the time, but remember, it's it's very hilly and it, there are some 45 degree steps, but there is a recreation of the gallows that's up there about where they thought he got hanged. You can kind of walk around there. And like I said, I, I'd been well hydrated. I had a bottle of water with me and then suddenly I got this really bizarre, insatiable thirst. And then I had the feeling, like I said, I don't, it wasn't evil or anything. It was just like, I got to get down here or... I could die of thirst. It doesn't make any sense, right? I'm not, I'm only like maybe three or 400 yards from uh, Main Street there. And there's people down there. I just felt like I had to get out of the, uh, I had to walk down immediately. Like it's time to get out of there. I I
5: get, that's the same feeling. Like I thought, no, I'm not looking in this. It's uh, it's, It was something visceral that just, it just was almost a force field. I couldn't walk to the front of that thing and look in for fear that (laughs) there might be something in there. Oh, yeah, that's boy. kind of yeah. what it was, I think. Yeah, I don't know.
3: Because what if there was? Like that's yeah, <laughs> that's it.
5: I just couldn't do it.
3: And plus, you're again, it's a it's a the setup of the horror movie. Your buddy's basically passed out for the moment, right?
5: He was on the step with with me. That's he right. He stayed where he was. He was too tired right. to walk the fifty sixty yards to where this nest was. I wanted to get close enough to get a picture and i knew i could blow up the picture basically <laughs> but i couldn't get too close to the nest i just yeah. couldn't get that close to it
6: if you were carl Kolshak, you would have gone up
2: <laughs> yeah,
6: well, <laughs> with an instant I, I didn't
5: have the beautiful girl like yeah. waiting for me you know? <laughs> uh,
2: tom thank you for taking the time to come on these are some great stories and we'd love to see that video of that yes. line oh, yeah, yeah. if you could send that along okay yeah i'll
5: send it i explained so know this that I drove three and a half hours up just to explore this one little area because mm-hmm. the noises that came from this area, it could have it was either a hunter, a very bad hunter, telling me to get out <laughs> right, by yeah. making the sound of a crow and alternating a crow and an owl with his mouth.
2: Uh, right. Or
5: yeah. it sounded so weird that I drove up three and a half hours a week later and found this one tree laying on the the tent is, I went back there a year later. It's still there. It's completely scuttled now. It's it's You couldn't use it. But at the time, all you had to do was take the one log, which was maybe this big around. You could just take it off and you'd have a turkey blind, you know, probably cost mm-hmm. 100 bucks or 150 bucks. Yeah. And you'd have a $10 or $20 folding chair. It was brand <laughs> new. It was red, brand yeah. new. In the video, you don't see the folding chair. But yeah. whoever set that up, came back and probably i'm making this up because i don't know right probably saw that something had knocked one tree down this way and tried to knock another tree down this way yeah the much bigger tree was was leaning on top of the blind
3: they took their chair and left a brand new blind just sitting there
5: they left the chair so they they, left (laughs) the chair and the blind and never came back never came back (laughs) whoever it was yeah they left a $150, well, yeah. let's say $100 blind yeah. and a $10 chair, turned around and said, nope,
2: I'm, not, I'm never coming
5: back. <laughs> wow. And it was all in this same area. Very, yeah. very
2: strange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for the picture. Thanks for telling your story. Thanks for getting in touch with us. This is, and, and I mean, Rich pointed this out, but you have this story coming to us from a man who's been hunting his whole life spent more time in the woods than 99% of the people in the United States, had no thought or ideas about the paranormal beyond being a little put off by ghost stories. Mm. And he's coming back and saying, look, something strange is going on here. And he talks about how uh, he had been telling the story for several years before a friend of his said, hey, you, you should listen to the Patterson Gimlin series over at Astonishing Legends. And so he went and got into that. And then he started getting this framework that he could apply to this story. But it was after the fact, after he'd been telling it over and over and over and couldn't figure out what it could possibly be, because that's not where his head was going. He wasn't thinking about Bigfoot. Right. He wasn't thinking about Sasquatch. This is different from, say, our first listener tonight, Tara. Tara who came on and, and she's there and she's open-minded to that idea. And she's with someone else who actually has been part of uh, Bigfoot hunting. And they're both saying, ah, I think this, this might be a Sasquatch that is out here in the woods or whatever outside this facility. And these are the calls we're hearing. He's saying, I'm seeing all this crazy stuff. I'm seeing th- these broken trees along a perfectly straight line and there's no tops to the trees. The tops are gone. Are they markers or something? I- I'm seeing this nest I am, I'm encountering something that seems to be pacing me as I'm hiking in the woods, but I can't see it even though it's right there in the daylight or at night. When I look at, I shine a flashlight, there's no eye right. shine. And then that nest is like, is that where the treetops went? And he didn't even say this, but this was my thought was whatever these things are, they're snapping these trees off, up super high yeah, as markers. And then they're also taking them and making a hut out of those <laughs> because right. the tops are not near the trees right? And then, and I also love the part where it's like, well, did you look in the nest? And you, Forrest, of course, you're like, I would have wanted to look in the nest. But I mean, you rightfully said from the comfort of my studio, it's (laughs) easy for me to say this, but I'm like, I don't know that I would have wanted to look in there. To clarify, it's that
3: feeling that is indescribable, right? I can't tell you in sufficient words, what that's like. You have to feel it. And that's what we always talk about when people say like, well, little weird things have happened to you. You're like, yeah, but I never felt anything. Right. Right. And I didn't feel the fear that he certainly did or the trepidation, let's say, that right. uh, looking into that shelter, uh, whatever it was, it seemed to be a purposeful and not a natural, just a collection of leaves and twigs that just happened to gather in the forest because they're it's too tall.
2: Just to be clear, we have a picture of that. Yeah, we, yeah. We have a still photo of this. You can see it. We'll put it on social media after this episode airs. So you can find it on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, our Patreon, wherever you find us. But we have a picture of this nest that he saw, just so everybody knows.
3: Right, I just want to impress upon people again who view it that it's hard to tell scale That structure, that shelter is tall, eight to 10 feet. So yeah, yeah, there's nothing there for scale, like he's not standing by it. I don't think he wanted to stick around and, and pose with it. But then you wonder, okay, those are sizable then logs, sticks, small trunks of trees that have been fashioned in that way. And it doesn't seem to be just a collection from a whirlwind. Or just the wind came down and it was a a wind shear kind of thing that snapped the tops off those trees. Where they were snapped is too tall for most humans for leverage, right? right? And too big around. So maybe it's a logging device, you could say, but you would have noticed all that. So nothing really makes sense about this. But what I love about this story and Tom's point of view is that what he's originally saying is that, look, I, I don't know what this is. And in that illogical sense, maybe Bigfoot is the the closest thing. But I'm now of a mind that, yeah, I don't know if this is classic Bigfoot behavior. You would have to ask a Bigfoot expert, is this all typical stuff? We've certainly heard of markers and different things like A-frames and uh, the tree that was smashed into the ground upside down, things that are unusual being credited with uh, Sasquatch having made them. I don't know about that line of trees being snapped off. I've never heard that. But again, I haven't heard everything. So what I'm thinking here is that this is also maybe part of a phenomenon. You know what I'm saying? An unseen, something that maybe is connected to Bigfoot. Maybe it's bigger than Bigfoot.
2: These two stories are very different. This is different because... Tom's not saying this is Bigfoot. He's not saying, Scott, he's saying that the other things he've heard about that match the circumstances that he experienced, but he never saw that. And my point about this is, if you're not seeing it, we're not seeing it. None of us know what it is, but we do know that there's a giant hut in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) We do know that he saw, and I believe we can trust him, these trees in this situation. And then there's the deer blind, which we're going to talk about in a second. All of that stuff together, fine, great. It's not Bigfoot. You don't believe in Bigfoot? Fine. What did this? Yeah. What is doing this? And I'm not saying that in a way like, see, it's Bigfoot. I'm saying, no, what is it? Fine, it's not Bigfoot. What is it? What is it?
3: Okay, so what's the next biggest animal out in the woods that might do this? Well, a bear.
2: Bears don't build shelters out of like that. A beaver, how about a giant, okay, a 10-foot beaver, That's, uh, maybe.
3: Well, yeah, in prehistoric times, it could be one of those uh, three-toed sloths that stood 12 feet at the shoulder whatever. Yeah. That's typically not bear behavior, snapping trees. They will scratch themselves against a tree, Using their backs.
2: They can't erect a structure like this one.
3: With a structure, we don't know when it was last abandoned. Of course, leaves fall down. If it's been a long time, those tracks are going to be covered up. But the thing with the blind, right, with the the blind being there and the tree being snapped over it and another one cross snapped over it. And we're talking, what did he say, like five or six inches in diameter, maybe more eight inches in diameter, sizable trees that didn't just blow over with the wind and there were no tracks around it. That was a recent event. And these guys are hunters. Yes. They look for tracks. And we have a
2: movie of this, right. by the way. We have video of this on the web and we're going to share this on social media too. But so basically what you're looking at is you've got the deer blind and then one of the trees, uh, which is probably, I'm guessing, I don't know, seven, eight inches in diameter has come down right down the middle of it, collapsing it on its center mm-hmm. line, has fallen right onto it. Okay. And so fine. Maybe that's a natural event. But the problem is it had snapped off, I think he estimated up to uh, maybe 10 feet off the ground. And it looked like from the break point, I'm not an arborist, Mm. but it looked like it was a living tree. Yeah, yeah. But even if it wasn't, the point is it broke 10 feet off the ground. The other trees around, if there was wind damage or a crazy tiny tornado Mm -hmm. or whatever, there was no other thing going on with the other trees nearby, except for the one other tree about 120 degrees, I think, mm-hmm. over 90 to 120 degrees over on another side of the deer blind, also broken with its trunk down towards the deer right. blind, but it didn't quite reach it because it hit another tree. That one is, looks like it's probably eight to 10 inches in diameter. And he said, by his estimate, that break was about five mm-hmm. feet up. So I'm just I challenge any of you to go into the woods and find a tree, a living tree with a nearly foot diameter trunk and break it in half five feet off right. the ground or 10 right. feet off the ground. Both of those, they're down over the deer blind. And then he makes the very salient point that that dude, whoever was in there, that guy that he didn't see, but knew was there that day he mm-hmm. was hunting. He abandoned that thing. It probably costs at least a hundred dollars, maybe 150 at Bass Pro Shops or wherever that, that store with the giant mountain inside. What's the other uh, Cabela's word? is uh, a, yeah. Another Cabela's, yes. they got the huge mountain inside, whatever. It's, you can tell it's a, a a nice expensive little piece of hunting kit that somebody just bailed on. And you can imagine this person coming back and be like, you know what? I'm going to go back for my blind. Even if I left scared Mm -hmm. the first time and seeing now the tree branches are like smashed down on it. How fast would you (laughs) hightail it out of the woods at that? you know what? I don't need this. I don't need this. I'm leaving. But, and then that's the guy I want to talk to too. Yeah. How many hunters have stories like that, that they never told anybody because they don't want people to think they're crazy. Right. They don't want their family and friends to make fun of them. They don't want to go on public record. What happened? Like, I wish that person would come out and be like, no, I left the deer blind there. It turns out I left and I got in a bad car accident and um, I was in a coma for a year. And when I came out of the coma, I didn't care about it anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, fine. Maybe that's the case. But even that timeline doesn't even work because he knew how much time it took between the time he saw it and when he went back. And so it's just unusual. And in fact, even though that's a video clip and you're going to find it on all our social media channels, Again, that's uh, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, wherever, we'll post it there. I did want to play the audio from it because even though you can't see the picture, it's interesting to hear Tom talking about mm-hmm. what he's seeing as he's walking up on the deer blind. So uh, Sarah, if you just play that real quick right here.
7: Okay. Here's a blind out in the middle of the woods. Somebody was squatting turkey. turkey I'm sure. Look if you can see. Tree fell right through the center of it. See that? You on that side? So kind of smashed the line. It's not too strange, I guess. But look where the tree snapped from. I'd say about ten feet high. Just snapped right off, right in the middle of that line. <clears throat> and that's not the final strange thing on the other side of the tree. There's a fresh snap right there, trying to push it, push that tree. So that's, that's probably five feet high, trying to push the big giant tree on top of the blind. Could be normal, but who knows, pretty strange.
2: So again, the biggest thing about this is you can tell, Tom doesn't know what it is. He's not yeah. saying, what it is, he's just saying, this is weird. Maybe that tree just fell over, I don't know. But for him, it seems like the closest explanation are the things that he's hearing other people tell about Bigfoot and Sasquatch, but here's the thing about that. yeah, What percentage of all Bigfoot and Sasquatch universe stories actually involve seeing the creature, as opposed to the evidence, hearing the sounds, hearing the tree knocking, weird things happening. We may all be talking about the same thing and it might not be Bigfoot or Sasquatch at all, Mm -hmm. but it's something, it is something you know, that's the part of it. It's like, what is it? Fine. You don't believe in Bigfoot? Great. What is doing this stuff? It is part of a
3: larger phenomenon that I've, I've come to wonder about. I have not done uh, much of any hunting at all myself, but I've grown up around that. I've certainly been out in the woods uh, a lot. And you can come across evidence of a natural animal, be it a bear, which I thought like, okay, that's the next biggest thing. Is that a bear runs up a tree, and it snaps in half, and uh, they get a little jarred, <laughs> they roll around a bit, and then they do it again over this blind, which is essentially a tent, okay? And, and a lawn chair there.
2: Yeah, a tiny little tent that you sit inside that hides you from right. the animals you're hunting.
3: And I'm sure that happens a bit. Having gone to Glacier Park a few times, what they tell you with an active uh, grizzly population is that if a grizz is chasing you, you want to climb up a tree that's wide enough in diameter that they don't push it over because they can do that. They don't snap the tree usually because, again, that that takes leverage. What they will do is they'll lean on it, they'll push on it till you fall over in the tree and then they have a snack. And you also don't want to run up a tree big enough in diameter
2: that they come up after you because they'll do that too. So what's the point in uh, involving the tree at all? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, you no, know, you want to run up a tree. Uh, or as they right. say, if you're... Uh, uh, with a friend, you don't have to outrun the grizzly. You just have to outrun your friend.
2: Yeah, right.
3: They're they're very powerful, but they don't snap it halfway up, ten feet up the uh, up the tree. That right. doesn't make any sense. And also, here's the other thing: there's no tracks around it. That's why I was saying about seeing uh, evidence of other animals, whether it, it's a deer, uh, bear, whatever it is, is that you'll you'll see tiny clumps of fur as they uh, barge their way through the brush. You'll see footprints, tracks you might see scat all these things are what animals produce when they are tromping around in the woods the other weird thing about that structure again it's it's hard to picture from this picture is i try to picture in my mind that this is a hard climb that is a little bit of a shelf of land getting up to the next step if you imagine a terraced stepped think of the like the rice paddies in thailand where it's kind of terraced up this is a hard to get to shelf so it's a weird place for a human to do that And it's an unusual place maybe for an animal. But then again, it's there. And I don't think these guys would have wasted their time building that for a hoax. But you don't know, maybe they did. People get on us saying like, well, you don't know what they did. And you're right, I don't. It just seems like an odd hobby. So the other thing that we've heard in connection with Sasquatch is that there's a lot of other weirdness that goes with it. Them disappearing a single track in a... Freshly laid snow or a single track in the mud, which is like, where's the other footprint? Did some goofy guy wearing those big wooden footprints take a huge leap 20 feet into uh, the middle of a muddy field and then just magically leapt like Spring Hill Jack into the brush just to do, uh, just to play a trick on people out in the middle of nowhere? Well, I don't know, maybe. Sounds unlikely to me.
2: Well, folks, we had a lot of fun with this show. We would like to once again thank Tara Greenleaf, Professor Dominic Boyer, and Tom Delaney for reaching out to us, as well as everybody else who sent us amazing stories. Don't worry, we're not done with those. We just uh, can only feature three in tonight's episode. And again, we would like to thank our very good friend Richard Haddam for showing up on relatively short notice to participate in tonight's show. Rich, thank you so much. And uh, just remember, folks, there's a lot more going out in this world than we might be able to understand. If something like this happens to you, let us know about it. That's going to wrap up this episode of Listener Stories. There will be more in the future, we assure you. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. But join us at Patreon to hear the Astonishing junk Drawer in the meantime. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the
3: lights on and Blanket for Diana.
2: Hi, I'm Jill Canfield, and I give permission. Hi,
4: I'm Brandon Adams,
3: and I give permission. Hi,
2: I'm Robin, and I give permission. Uh, my name is spelled D O N F I E L D
3: S. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Special thanks to our announcer,
2: John Boland. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at FounderMusic.com and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Our logo was created
3: by Tommy Beaver Design and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua
2: Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to AstonishingContact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be
3: possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or
2: interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at Patreon.com slash Astonishing Legends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.